everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. Yeah. 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 Uh, this is the podcast here at the Creek Click Time Network, where every month uh, we do a best of list. Whitney does one. Mm. I do one. Uh, we, we compare and contrast. We have a good time. And uh, the topics are selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, we're, we're continuing a trend here. Yeah. Uh, just as a LARF, several months back, maybe about a year ago at yeah, this point. Yeah, take. We decided to add one of the lists. Hey, why don't we just have all the films that begin with A? Yeah, it was what are just the, an idle thought. What are the best movies that start with the letter A? They have nothing else in common. Mm. They just happen to start with the letter A. We like alphabetizing things. Let's do it. And uh, it turned out to be kind of fun. And mm. uh, we decided to, when that was reasonably successful and people enjoyed it, we put the letter B on a poll in a couple of months. Yeah. Or, to, to tell the truth, we, we cracked it out because we couldn't think of a fourth topic that week, that yeah, month. that's true. So it's like, okay, what the heck, we'll just do the well, letter B, and you know what, now we're up to the letter D. Yeah, well, actually, to be fair, when we started it off, I think it was your idea. I was like, let's mm. do the letters that, I think you said, like, all the best movies that start with the letter M or something random. Yeah. And I was like, if we're going to do this, let's start with A mm. and move forward. <laughs> and uh, so that was the compromise. But yeah, we every couple of months, one of these seems to win the poll. And uh, we are up, finally, to the letter D. Yeah. Mm. D is for lots of things. Yeah, D. Uh... Okay, so uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no no real like way to that. The letter D is the yeah. first part of well, the alphabet. I, I will say there's this. There's like, no context for the letter D. I, I will say but, this. Uh, I was looking up, like, you know, we, we in order to, like, you know, we, we the movies come to us off the top of our head. But then we're like, okay, am I forgetting anything? And I start looking at movies that begin with the letter D. And... Boy, once you start like really looking at it, a lot of movies begin with some kind of variation on the word "dead" or "death." Dead, death, and dark, uh, or day, or or day. Uh, like or, those are a lot. Uh, uh, so yeah, you can you can fill out an entire just with the word. We we could have done a, a lists list of uh, films that begin with the word "dead" or "death." Uh, yeah, there's fact, plenty of those. I think there's at least two of mine on the on the list that have like "dead," "death," or "dark." Uh, I have there. I have two. Yeah, yeah um, I have two. What if they're the same ones? They could so, be. Yeah. They might uh, not be. There's so many. <laughs> uh, to reiterate, we have a few rules um, uh, in, in terms of like, we, if it's a foreign movie, we're going to use the uh, title and that was introduced us here in the United States, mm-hmm. so the English language title. Uh, but either way, even if you do want to get, even if that that is kind of arguable, because sometimes movies are released under one title and then released under another title later. Yeah. Uh, so basically, our rule is this: if you use it, if it begins with a different letter and different titles. You can't use it twice. Fair. You have to pick it once, and then that's the if, that's if the we, time you if use we get it. Around you to it yeah. on, on another list, you can't pick it again. Exactly. Like for example, uh, what, what's um, Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, which mm-hmm. didn't make my list, but it is very good. Uh, was released in uh, originally in Australia and New Zealand under I think it was Bra- it's called, Brain it's called Brain Dead. Yeah. Brain Dead. You could pick one. You yeah. can't do both. <laughs> you can't be on well, both lists. Uh, in the case of Dead Alive, uh, I would go with the title that it was released here in the United States. I realize that. My point uh, is that I, over, I wouldn't I wouldn't fight you as long you know, as you didn't try a, to do it twice. Yeah, it was called Dead Alive. And why don't we start there? Because that is on my list. Oh, snap. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works out. Uh, actually, I really dig Dead Alive. Um, Dead Alive was one of those movies that uh, made me feel like a punk when I was in college. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I found that like 
I found the goriest movie of all time, and it's this like zombie comedy film from Peter Jackson. Yeah. And it's a movie that's actively trying to be the goriest movie of all time, yeah. too. But not and in like, you know, a gross way, but in a funny way. And you know what? I, I I still don't think it's really been beat. Like, maybe that Evil Dead remake was pretty gory. That's pretty fucking gory. Yeah, movie, like, yeah. where they're, they're chainsawing seen... a body lengthwise while it rain, literally rains blood out of the sky. I, I think there's two kinds of gore. There's gore that's meant to be enjoyed, and gore that's meant to repel. Yeah, and I think that when we speak about gory movies, we're generally referring to the first kind because mm. once you hit the second kind and you hit like Human Centipede two and three territory, it's not well. There's no there's gore th- in those movies. Well, the, no, the second one. There well, is. second one. Second. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll take it to well. Yeah, I I think you I remember more gross stuff in the third one than you do. But anyway, the point is this: uh, they're not meant to be fun. Right. They're not meant to be fun. Dead alive is part of the uh, splatstick horror wave that emerged in the 80s with films like Evil Dead 2 yeah. and Reanimator and um, well, those are the big, those are the big three. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but they're Alive. Yeah. yeah, Dead Alive, uh, Gorgeous Return of Living Dead. And the premise is very simple. Um, uh, this this creature, this imaginary creature called the Sumatran Rat Monkey, yeah. uh, it gets uh, taken out of Sumatra and taken to Wellington, New Zealand, where the hero, a guy named Lionel, is living with, and he's... Uh, really oppressed by his mom. His mom gets bitten by the rat monkey and she turns into a zombie. Yeah. Uh, and mayhem ensues. Uh, yeah. She bites somebody who comes over to visit. Uh, she, They bite other people and eventually Lionel has like all of the zombies, maybe six of them in all, just sort of around a dinner table trying to look after them. Yeah, he's not like trying to kill all the zombies because mm. the zombie's his mother and his mother was such a domineering, like emotionally manipulative and abusive person that he's still under her thumb even after she's dead. Mm. Um, And then he's also just kind of such a decent dude that he doesn't really think to kill them. He's just like, I have to contain the problem. Uh So like, oh, they they killed the priest. And oh, they killed this lady over here. And now they're zombies. I just have to keep them at the dinner table. And I just have to keep everything nice. Well, his his idea is he figures out that he can inject them with animal tranquilizers to to sort of keep them calm. And uh, even though his mom is dead and rotting and is a zombie, uh, at one point she gets tranquilized. They think she's dead. His solution is to go to her grave, dig her up, and keep tranquilizing her, I guess on a regular basis. Right. Uh, but of course she breaks out of her grave, uh, bites some 19, this takes place in the 1950s. Uh, she bites some like local like thugs, like greaser types. Yeah. Uh, who immediately turn into zombies that attract the attention of the local priest, who is a kung fu priest. I kick ass uh, for the Lord! Mm, awesome so, Stand back, boy. This calls for divine intervention. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, good one. Good accent. I can't yeah. do that. I can't, I'm bad at that. <laughs> do, right. do the Kiwi accent. I can't do that at all. Uh, yeah. ki- I'm sure Kiwis winced when Oh, I'm sure, that, but it was but, better uh, than mine. That's all I'm saying. It's better than mine. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the, they get the priest, and of course this all climaxes at a point where uh, the main character's... Uh, cousin or, or uncle or something uncle. It's his uncle uh, is yeah. holding a big house party with hundreds of people and the yeah. zombies break out and everybody turns into zombies yeah and they all get dispatched in the most hideous possible ways it's people's faces split open yeah. and babies crawl out uh you know it's so, so fucking gross so, uh and, and the big climax is uh, the the hero upturns a lawnmower and just walks through a crowd of people oh, and body so parts go cool. spraying everywhere. It's There's a great. living colon attached to lungs and it crawls around and strangles people. Ah, oh, it's, it's amazing. It's the sickest shit and it's so much fun. Peter Jackson, when he first started, he started off with a film called Bad Taste, which is such an incredibly low budget movie. It opens with a fight between two characters and they're both played by Peter Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> like it's really cheap, but he spent all of his time and money on like the visual effects he needed for like Alien 
alien monster stuff, and mm. it's fun. It's a super yeah. fun ultra low budget uh, movie. And then he did this, frankly, not very good, but certainly fascinating evil Muppets movie called Meet the Feebles, which is like behind the scenes <laughs> well, made, of the most despicable Muppet show ever. He made meet. I think he made he made Dead Alive first. No, no. I'm pretty sure. Well, let me, let me look second. up that timeline because, uh, but yeah, he did a film called Meet the Feebles. Yeah, which yeah was a riff on the Muppet Show, but they're all like filthy and sick and like yeah. filming porno movies in the yeah, basement and, they're, and doing stuff. horrible drugs and killing mm. each other. And it's just it, it it's a hell of an achievement because it's super complicated. But I mm. honestly don't find it very good or interesting to watch. <laughs> well, it's it's fascinating in how just utterly repellent it is. Sure. That's the point. It's supposed to be repellent. It, but that's succeed. my point. I think it's I think it's too I think uh, it's a little too good at it. Yeah, and I think and, uh, I I think when he was just being like basically an extremely talented immature adolescent who just liked gory movies. Mm. That was kind of the sweet spot for Peter Jackson because he eventually like he's gone through so many weird phases. He's done his like art house phases where he did like Lovely Bones. Yeah, and Meet the that. Feebles was eighty nine and Dead Alive was ninety two. Yeah, so, so I said yeah, Meet the Feebles was right. second. Yeah, yeah. Um, he did Heavenly Creatures, which is admittedly very very great. Yeah. Um, he did a really awesome fake documentary called Forgotten Silver, which mm. nobody talks about but really needs to be seen more. I love that movie. Yeah, and then, uh, uh, then in nineteen ninety six, he made a film called The Frighteners, which was supposed to be a Tales from the Crypt movie. Yeah, but they decided yeah. it was strong enough to hold up on its own. Mm. And that movie's fun. It's 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 it was really unhinged. It's chaos, uh, yeah. and it was Peter Jackson sort of testing out computer special effects for the first time. So yeah. there's a lot of very dated computer effects on it, yeah. but innovative use of it. And you can draw a straight line from that to Lord of the Rings, no, where which... he actually pulled way back. And every once in a while, there's moments in the Lord of the Rings movies, often with like the goblins where like things get a little weird and you can see the old Peter Jackson shine through. But mm. yeah, I miss the old he got, chaotic. He got, he got really childish Peter like Jackson. Normal and reined in. And of yeah. course he's, you know, making these gigantic movies with a huge budget. He's, he's doing fine. Probably he's not, not permitted to be as yeah. strange as he could be, but I think he also just sort of lost interest in that stuff. Maybe, which is a pity because I like those movies better. Yeah, uh, he's a very. He's, uh, I've he said so before, creative. I've, I've said plenty of times before that he he's a much more interesting filmmaker when he doesn't have a big budget. And there are many yeah. filmmakers like that. Um, Dead Alive, I think, is sort of like his apex, though. Mm. That that is the the best of the Peter Jackson. Oof. Fair enough. Well, um, my number ten. Might as well start uh, also with a horror movie. Um, there's a lot of debate I think some people have over like what's the best George A. Romero zombie movie. Mm-hmm. And I think Day that of, Day of the Dead. Well, hang on. No, Day of the Dead. That, that's the correct I was answer. building to that. <laughs> I know a lot of people were going to assume I was going to say Dawn because it All starts right. with a D. And people like that mm-hmm. one. I was building to it. I was building context. The original Night of the Living Dead arguably the most like complete because it's just kind of its own thing it's just mm. kind of a perfect scary story it's so wonderful and i think it's a great movie um dawn of the dead the original dawn of the dead i'm actually not that big a fan like i respect it it's slow but moving it's, it's a bit of a slog yeah, it's, yeah. I, I just don't think but it's, it's about consumerism yeah like, tangentially I it. it's yeah, like, okay. I, I get it i just think the pacing is i've seen not, different not versions of it profound yeah. I, I don't think it's very interesting i don't think the Zack snyder film was particularly profound either but at least it moves mm. um and actually i think i think land of the dead is very underrated as well although the, the other ones are diary sucks and survival has good ideas but isn't very good uh but day of the dead is one of my favorite pressure cooker horror movies. <laughs> it takes that isolation of people like hiding from the zombie apocalypse, but rather than, well, we just ran into this house and we have to spend the night. They've been there for a long time. 
and they are ready to murder each other. It's and, bad. And, and, and half of them are military guys, so yeah. they're armed anyway, and they're yeah. all, they were angry and they're going in. And they're asserting their authority. They're tired of listening to all these like scientists who are trying to study the zombies. All mm. they want to do is kill. Um, it's The zombie apocalypse has been going on for a while, and the handful of people who are living in this underground bunker aren't entirely confident that they're not the only people left in the world. Mm. Like, they, they might very well be the last, like, well, I forget how, how many people. It's like eight people left on the planet. Yeah. Like, it's, the desperation is kicking in. It's the absolute, like, ultimate worst case scenario of that situation. And that would be enough, honestly, because I feel like that whole situation, all of the that desperation, all of that anxiety, all of that uh, animosity they have towards each other, is a panic attack. It's just a panic attack in a movie form. And then, of course, there are zombies. And then, of course, there's actually really fascinating stuff on top of that. Like the one scientist who has been trying to educate zombies. Yeah, proving that they're dead, but they can be re-civilized, yeah, essentially. This, this doesn't necessarily... This, this is the end of civilization as we know it, but is it the end of civilization? Hmm. Could Will the zombies take over and eventually just stop like milling around and eating things and actually start like being... Like re- people yeah and Build, building a zombie version of society yeah. and that's a big and that's a big big conversation and uh that leads to the introduction of one of my favorite characters in all of horror bub <laughs> bub, bub the zombie yeah he's been who's chained the, up the by one this doctor. That, that he's trying to trying to train yeah and he's been chained up by this by this doctor and whether or not bub has achieved some form of has regained some form of consciousness is a question that i'm not going to ruin for you uh but i do love the way it plays out uh, it's gory as fuck, and this is one of those movies oh, where golly like, is it ever? This is one of those movies where like the, the original Night of the Living Dead is actually pretty restrained. You see like zombies like eating guts, but they're just like picking them up with their hands and eating it. Like mm. it's just it's repulsive, but it's not like uh, wacky or ultra violent. It's just violent and gross. Um, Dawn of the Dead starts getting broader, starts getting more violent, but there's like a scene in uh, Day of the Dead. Where, like, a guy is, like, grabbed by zombies, and the zombies just yank, and he just separates in the middle. <laughs> and you just see all the guts fall out, and he's going, ah, my guts! And it's so fucking gross. <laughs> it's so unbelievably gross. It is entertaining, and it's horrifying. It mm. finds a really strong balance. That's hard to do. Um, I think Day of the Dead is, in many respects, the ultimate George A. Romero zombie movie. There's others that are maybe a little bit more profound. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Land of the Dead actually has a lot on its mind and covers similar ground. Um, I think it's a really underrated flick. Please watch that again if you haven't. But um, yeah, Day of the Dead is just scary. It scares me. Like it it's... puts me in that situation with mm. them, and I don't like being there. And I want to get out, even if it means dying because zombies are attacking me. That's hard and, to do. Yeah, and it's it says something that Bub is the friendly character, and the the shouty army dude uh, is like. The villain. The, the one you're really scared of. Yeah. Because, again, the, the George A. Romero used these kinds of stories to put civilization in a microcosm. Mm. You look at the original Night of the Living Dead. It's uh, basically, okay, all of civilization has faltered. Who are we going to listen to? The, the, the smart guy who happens to be black and would normally be, uh, uh, you know, mistreated by society at large in the 1960s? Or we're gonna talk, listen to the middle management guy who's panicky and wants to and wants to run and protect himself at all costs. 
Well, in many situations in that in that society, you would listen to that panicky guy because he wouldn't be panicky. He would just be like in charge of middle management. My mm-hmm. point is this: all of like the 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 coding, all of the 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 like the hierarchies vanish and become irrelevant. But the way people cling to them mm-hmm. because they have no sense of uh, uh, adaptability uh, is their downfall. Yeah. And here, we're, because we're doing this with more of, uh, we're looking at sort of the staples of societal institutions, uh, the military, the the uh, the the scientists, the people who are responsible for fixing things, and people are responsible for breaking them. Uh, and we're just seeing how they're going to fight it out, and it's not going to end well for anybody. And that movie scares the shit out of me, and I love that movie. And I'm being a little inarticulate uh, about it, and it annoys me. So I want to move I'm on. I'm so sorry. Um, it, yeah. It's also, you say it's very scary. It, it's yeah, will make the veins in your temples pop a little bit, but it's also fun. It is. It's actually like yeah, it's very sillier and lighter and a lot more energetic than any of the other dead movies. Even when you compare it mm. to something like Land of the Dead, which is like kind of a carnival. I don't, I don't know about that, dude. I think it's a little harsher than that. I think it's. Mm. I think it's silly. People remember it, maybe, but I don't think it's. If, I don't if, think it's that if you silly. watch it, especially coming right off of uh, Dawn of the Dead, which is such a weirdly laconic movie which yeah. was really downbeat and low energy like there, there's a lot going on in, I would say it has in per- Day of the Dead I think Day of the Dead has personality I think sometimes the personality is funny but mm. I don't know I think Land of the Dead is a bit more of a hoot but anyway <laughs> uh, what's your number nine uh, let's see let's let's keep on with the dead um, I, I this is a film that we talk about often and it's one that sort of has slipped from the conversation, so I want to bring it up as often as I can, and it's What's Kenneth that? Branagh's Dead Again. Oh, that's, uh, a, that's nice. That didn't make my top ten, but that's yeah, a good um, thing. Again, th- this, these are not for posterity. You know, they're, they're uh, great classics that begin with the letter D that I'm not including on my list because I don't need you to see... I don't need to tell you to see Dracula. Right. Uh, you know to see Dracula. I, I have a mix. There are some films mm-hmm. I feel, like, irresponsible for not putting on my list, but mm-hmm. I also, like, again... These, this is also a matter of our taste. This mm. isn't for posterity. This is us yeah. telling you, like, if you asked us, so, like, look uh, at all these movies, is, this giant list, and the only thing that that, that uh, connects them is one letter of the alphabet at the front of the of the front of the title. What's your top ten? Hmm. It's a so, mix. Yeah. So the the take this as a recommendation rather than you know one of the greatest of all time for posterity's sake mm-hmm. uh, because this is one that is ripe for rediscovery it, I feel like it's always on the cusp it's one of those movies you bring up and mm-hmm. people say oh yes that is quite good isn't it yeah and then never moves beyond that but yeah Kenneth Branagh uh, came off of Henry V which was sort of this big explosive uh, debut into the world of film uh, he was already kind of a darling of the theater world uh, with he followed up with us this really kind of bizarre idea for a thriller. It was just, he made a Hollywood thriller. He made it with Emma Thompson mm. and Derek Jacobi. Uh, Robin Williams, uncredited, in the, is in the movie, and he plays sort of this shiftless. That is, Brenna plays this kind of shiftless private eye character who has to discover the identity of a young woman who is mute and can't remember her past. Mm. Uh, and she's played by Emma Thompson and. They begin to sort of foster a relationship. He kind of lets her, she learns to speak again. They start getting a little bit warm. And in order to have her rediscover her memories, he takes her to uh, a hypnotist. A hypnotist played by Derek Jacobi. He is also getting the opinion of uh, a 
a shamed psychiatrist who is played by Robin Williams, and he is shamed because uh, he he slept with a patient and he was yeah. kicked out. He was drummed out of uh, psychiatry, and now he works in a grocery store. So Kenneth Branagh goes to the grocery store to talk about this guy's. Uh, this is a great performance from Robin Williams. Yeah, he's really good. Uh, Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson and Derek and this Jack, is, and this can't is... give bad performances. Yeah, and this well, is... I mean, <sighs> Kenneth Branagh can, but uh, <laughs> he, he has. Oh. I've, I've seen him play, like, broad, when stupid he, When he plays before. a villain, he tends to ham it up, like, yeah, way like, too much. Like, in Tenet, he's he's doing something weird in Tenet. I don't yeah, know I don't, I'm not exactly... Going, like, yeah. he, he's playing, like, a mean guy, but then he kind of, like, vacillates a little bit yeah. as to what his character is. I feel like... He's like one of the most watchable things in that awful Jack Ryan film that he directed. Yeah, he's getting that one. I, the, uh, yeah, he just he really hams it up in ten. I don't know why. Yeah, but anyway. but yeah he's, and he's playing sort of this like vapid yuppie guy, and he's doing that incredibly well in, in mm. this movie. Uh, but yeah, Robin Williams is really cracking out this. I, I hadn't uh, until the, up to this point seen place a character with such like rage and pathos before. He was always playing like broad, funny characters or even yeah. in Dead Poets Society. Yeah. He's an upbeat sort of character yeah. who's trying to be encourage people to read things. Yeah, or, or Good uh, Good Morning mm. Vietnam was another one. Like these are yeah, like dramatic-ish yeah. roles, yeah. but they but were still funny, funny characters. Yeah, fun, yeah. sweet guys, yeah. Uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Another big comedy hit that is out of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it as it eventually comes to light uh when uh the emma thompson character is hypnotized she begins to remember not her past but past lives and how uh it all relates back to this murder from back in world war ii like just after the war uh, and we get to see in black and white flashbacks uh emma thompson and kenneth branagh playing other characters in their in previous lives and how the animosity in the past somehow relates to the present, and it's there's so a good. lot of weird twists as to what happens. And and are they going to uh, relive those roles again? Yeah, and, and it's like, oh, it's and, so good. And, wait, but does that mean I'm infected by the ghost of this guy? And are we destined to start hating each other and maybe killing each other again? And yeah, yeah it's, it's it's such a great. It's premise. really tightly wound. It's a yeah. really interesting premise. It's incredibly well done. Yeah, it's it's a four star movie. He, uh, he makes it, he he films it real spooky. Yeah, like he makes it like everything just has this like real thick layer of like. It, it, it parts of it feel like kind of like just a private eye movie, but then it also has this real gothic level of romance, but also terror. Mm. And boy, is it neat! That's a good pick, actually. I, mean, I almost, <laughs> I almost forgot. You, you put it on yours, I need to put it on mine. But like, that's I get it. I heartily second this. <laughs> well, thanks. Because it's a really good pick. I yeah. love it a lot. Um. Well, uh, I'm gonna finish off my dead slash dead. Well, no, wait. Actually, hold on. Any other dead? No, I have two more. Shit. I well, well. I, I guess okay. Well, here's the I deal. I don't have any more dead, but I do have a. Uh, well, I'll, I'll okay. get to it. Here's the deal. I mm-hmm. have I have one more that begins with dead, and another one that has uh, uh, begins with death. Yeah, well, start with dead because we're still on the dead. Well, let's talk about Dead Ringers. <laughs> That's a good choice. Dead Ringers is an amazing motion picture. Holy shit! So uh, it's uh, uh, directed by David Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, who started his career mostly doing uh, what would become to be known as body horror movies. Uh, these are movies about people who are mutating or infected mm-hmm. and well, are horrified d- by what's happening yeah, to their bodies. A disease is a big running theme in Cronenberg's yeah. work. Uh, but Cronenberg also seems to believe that the flesh and the mind are directly interconnected, and so a diseased mind will sometimes uh, manifest, manifest yeah, physically. As, as and so you see that in something like, and you see something like Videodrome. Mm. Uh, but, uh, and, and many of those pictures are just absolutely astounding. The Fly is amazing. His version of The Fly is amazing. The original is good too. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of Shivers. <laughs> like just creepy as hell. 
Um, and then he took kind of a step back and he made something that was still horrifying, but was very plausible and just felt very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a movie called Dead Ringers, which stars Jeremy Irons and Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons plays identical twins. They are uh, both gynecologists. One of them is very confident and uh, sociable, and uh, everyone loves him. And the other one is very meek and uh, gets dragged along by his brother uh, constantly. And he is so meek that he has trouble meeting any women, and so they have an arrangement where every once in a while, the more confident Jeremy Irons will seduce a woman, and he will let his twin brother... Kind of like step in Step in and, and replace him, and that's incredibly creepy, and the movie knows it. Um, they both fall in love with the same woman. This woman has uh, an unexpected uh, mutation that mm-hmm. comes up in their work, and uh, they become obsessed with her. And they end up falling deep, deep, deep into obsession and jealousy it's, and there, madness. It, it, it's initially said that they've both fallen in love with the, the Jean-Vierre Pujol character. Yes. And uh, she's played by Jean-Vierre Pujol. Yeah. And, um but you know, Cronenberg doesn't, at least at this point in his career, wasn't directing anything about warmth or love in, no, in a conventional true. kind of sense. No. In fact, I don't think he ever really has told like a proper love story. It's rare that uh, we have characters who have sort of like a warm relationship. He started that uh, history of violence with that sort of thing, but then I, I think he kind of subverted it partway through. I think the movie. there's a little bit of that in a dangerous method, but even mm. then, if they're they're so busy analyzing that relationship, it yeah. never really. It feels natural, yeah. Uh, so it, it doesn't feel like a love story. It feels like an obsession story. Yeah. And uh, because the emotional plane is so far away from these um, Cronenberg's obsession with uh, disease and fears about the body, uh, it becomes about obsession about the body and obsession yeah. about uh, curing or just sort of reveling in body abnormalities. Yeah, there's this horrifying bit where uh, one of the one of the Jeremy Irons... Uh, decides to come up with a new set of gynecological tools to, in yeah, order to deal with mm. mutated uh, uh, body parts. Mm. And uh, those tools are fucking terrifying. Yeah. Those tools are specifically designed to scare, to repel you. Mm. But like, that is not what science tools are supposed to look like. That is, mm. those are unholy instruments. And, and because Jeremy Irons is playing two characters, there's a lot of uh, questions of identity start to come up. Yeah. And, and, and they start sort of losing themselves in each other and they actually start forming a single like hive entity Hmm. and jeremy irons is ridiculously fucking good in this movie like unbelievably an oscar but uh you know where's like the four others you know he needs a lot when when jeremy jeremy irons won an academy award for the film reversal of fortune he played klaus von bulow uh and that movie's great by the way people don't talk about that movie very much that movie kicks ass that movie is a really interesting complicated work um, he totally deserved that Oscar. No, I'm not going to fight that at all. Uh, however, at the time, the general consensus was he won the Oscar for Reversal of Fortune because he wasn't nominated for Dead Ringers. Because he is so good. If you didn't know who Jeremy Irons was, you would think he was too. He, he was identical twins. The editing <laughs> is perfect. The cinematography is perfect. They don't do a lot of like camera trickery and like split screen, but when they do, they nail it. Like they just film it completely naturally 
And Jeremy Irons is giving such a subtle, nuanced performance where he is really playing off of himself mm -hmm. in a way that is hard to do. It's really, really hard to do. Yeah, and he is killing it in this movie. He's, a, he's one of my favorite yeah, performances you, you, in all the movie history. You can always tell which of the two twins uh, they, they're filming. Not because they like color coat them or anything no, it's not, like that. Yeah. It's just Jeremy Irons' performance yeah. in terms of like how he holds himself and how he reads yeah. the lines. Uh, nails uh, it. There's even a scene where uh, the, the meek brother does like kind of a playful imitation of his brother. Uh -huh. And he, so now we're having like acting on top of acting and Jeremy Irons nails that too. Yeah, you're ne it's never just it's, like he just yeah. does the other performance. He's doing the other guy doing the performance and yes. not the right way fucking perfect yeah. <laughs> like it's really just one of the best performances i've ever seen in my mm. life and the movie itself is just sad it's not really a horror movie it's sad it's a very yeah, tragic it, it, tale of people who just fell into yeah. a, a horrifying place and never crawled out and it's just a it's i i, I if it wasn't for the fly, I'd say this is David Cronenberg's best movie. But it, they're both they're both yeah, well, absolutely astounding. Yeah, the, the, the fly has the the added benefit of just those like some of the best movie special effects you'll ever see, especially in True. the climax. But it's just it's also uh, a kind of poetry though. That yeah, I, I I still hold that Videodrome is his best movie, and Fair just enough. because it deals not just with body horror, but you know is very directly addressing sort of the medium to which it belongs. So it's actually yeah. like this wonderful meta commentary on the way we consume modern media I think and that better... still plays into the way we consume media today even though it was made in 1983 i think that's i think that movie is a little better as a commentary than it is as a film but I'll, i do appreciate I'll, it deeply I'll, I'll grant you that but i, I like yeah. the essay part of it so much well when we get to the letter v <laughs> we can we talk can about, about video drum at greater length but anyways dead ringers is brilliant and that's my number yeah, nine pick. what's your number eight i also like uh dead ringers a lot so i did dead, dead again dead alive i have no more dead, but I do have a die. Oh, that as, counts. As in die hard. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I knew you'd pick granted. it, so I didn't bother. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I know it's a cliche to talk about die hard. Everybody's talked about die hard. You know die hard. Bruce Willis plays a New York cop. He wasn't known as an action hero yet. He was a comedy guy. It was yep. a risk, but they did Every it. action hero in Hollywood, Hollywood turned down this movie. Yeah, like yeah. Every, like look at the list. Like every big action star yeah. was like past. They like when they started going to like people who weren't even action stars but were kind of could have been like Richard Gere and shit. Yeah. And it was like no, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, Bruce Willis was like their twentieth pick. And, and you see Bruce Willis, and you, it's like because it, it's such a, a famous movie, and you you're used to seeing him in that role. Now yeah. it's difficult to picture other people in that role, but. Yeah. Uh, but he plays the role very well as John McClane, New York cop who moves to L.A. and a big part. Well, a movie's visiting. Or his his wife he's visiting his, his yeah. estranged wife. They're not divorced yet, but they might get divorced pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, and um, she's played by uh, Bonnie Bedelia. And she uh, has a, this high-powered job in a, a big, brand-new, high-tech office building. Nakatomi uh, Plaza. Plaza. Yeah. And they're having a big Christmas party up there. And a bunch of yuppies are doing coke and, and getting laid up in this building. Yeah. And just One of whom is Whitney Seibold. Uh, he's, look, he's played by Hart Bachner. <laughs> when Whitney joined the movie trivia showdown, <laughs> he had he had just recently had to grow out his beard, yeah. and everyone's and he, his whole thing was he wore a nice suit. Yeah. So everyone said he looked like Hart Bachner from from, from Die Hard. From Die Hard, and you're like. <laughs> Hart Bachner was so handsome that Supergirl and Faye Dunaway fought over him. So yeah, that's fair. I, I, that, I'm okay with the comparison. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Hart Bachner plays like the biggest yuppie scum of them all. He's like the, the apex yeah. yuppie oh, in that movie. Oh, he's such a He's such a And wouldn't you know it, Alan Rickman is there to uh, stage a gigantic 
hostage scenario. And I'm, yeah. I'm not going to say go more into the crime in case you haven't seen Die Hard. But uh, yeah, it's got, it's actually really clever. It, it's mm. it's a movie that it, I feel like there was an interesting wave in the late '80s. Where we started getting, and actually I think John McTiernan, who directed uh, the original Die Hard, was kind of at the forefront of this, but this and Predator, Mm -hmm. uh, where there were a lot of movies that were excellent action movies, but were also subtle commentaries on what action was doing, and were trying Mm -hmm. to undermine, or at the very least subvert, our expectations of what had become a pretty straightforward genre. Yeah, I I feel like it's really obvious in Predator, it's a little uh, frustrating to me that people don't see Predator as a satire first. Yeah, it's a uh, satire of action movies yeah. and masculinity, and it's spot on, but it works so well hmm. as the superficial version of that, so people don't even bother looking further. But yeah. Die Hard is hard to miss. Like, John McClane is not a typical action hero. Hmm. He's actually very vulnerable, and he's constantly wounded, hmm. and he's worried about saving his marriage. Indeed, and, the, uh, yeah. the whole action movie, like his cliche action line, which is, uh, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Uh, that was a joke. That was actually supposed to be the stupid version of that kind of line. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're just like one of those cowboys. You're just going to ride off into the sunset and say something really, really stupid. Mm-hmm. It's, this is his modern spin-out. Oh, well, okay. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. You know, like he's, he's yeah. sort of playing with it. It's not supposed yeah. to be a straight action it's line. Actually, it's actually thrown off the cuff. Yeah. Like very, uh, 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 yeah, of course, right. then they, they made a bunch of the sequels and he repeated it and actually yeah. became like a legit action line. And then it became, uh, oh, the worst one was in uh, Live Free or Die Hard where uh, like they had to like cut off because it was trying to be PG-13. Mm. So they like cut off and, and the F word part. You, and I, you, you can get away with one one F word in a PG thirteen rated film think, in a non sexual context. I don't think you can get away with motherfucker. But you, yeah, you can't say motherfucker because yeah, yeah, you know, there's yeah. uh, so uh, you got Hans. You get uh, the incredible Alan Rickman, and this was Alan Rickman's breakout role. Like people did not know Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman just exploded off the screen, and he's one of the great movie villains. And his character is again nowadays his character has become a cliche, but at the time he was subverting cliche. Yeah. And he was not what anyone expected that main bad guy and, to be. And, and he was actually mm-hmm. very uh, erudite and clever. And he wasn't, his motive was not what it seemed to be like on the box. Yeah, and and he's, it's he's, what a wonderful performance. He's very like, like clear thinking and, and well-spoken yeah. villain with a good plan. Yeah. And the plan well, is uh, brilliant. Like the plan mm-hmm. is like, that's another thing about Die Hard, where it's not just like some random guys just blew up mm. some stuff. It's actually like a really intricately and well thought out and well structured plan. And John McClane is the really annoying fly in that ointment <laughs> because we see how perfectly laid out the plan is, and we mm. see John McClane break it yeah, at every turn. What an incredibly structured screenplay it is! It, it's yeah. If if you're gonna write screenplays, watch Die Hard a bunch. Just yeah. copy it because the, you're gonna yeah. need to know those story beats. It does everything pretty perfectly in terms of the way action screenplays ought to function. Yeah. Uh, This was a movie that, uh, you know, was widely celebrated. It was a big hit when it came out. Uh, It's, you know, become a Christmas classic over the years. And it was one that escaped my attention. I was not interested in seeing movies with guns or explosions. I'm still not. It's just not, not my thing. Uh, I don't, I don't really go in for that kind of film. Generally speaking. Uh, so I w- didn't see Die Hard until I was in my 30s. And golly, did I slap myself in the face. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Wait, this one's actually like really good. Yeah. Oh, wait, this one's like really good. 
And I became, I, I went from dismissing it throughout my youth to being pretty hardcore proselytizer about it. Of course, by the time I'm proselytizing about Die Hard, everyone had seen it already. And there were already yeah. many sequels that had been made. I think I'd seen like half of the third one before I saw yeah. any of the other uh, Die Hard films. I saw this when it came out. And even at the time, even when I was a kid, I knew it was pretty special. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the movies where everything about it is pretty, pretty great. And then like, as we have grown as a society, we've noticed that there's a few things about it that are wonky. Mm-hmm. And the biggest one is Reginald Ville Johnson's character. Um, Reginald Ville Johnson, great character mm-hmm. actor. Uh, best known for um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The sitcom, the Fresh Prince of yeah. Bel-Air. Uh, he plays a cop who he is the only, he's a beat cop who gets dragged. He just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he gets dragged into this. And he's like the only clear thinking, logical person in the LAPD, which I bite. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> from, from LA. Yeah. Uh, but um, his subplot is actually kind of shitty because the whole thing is he was like demoted to like a beat cop because he shot a child mm. who was playing with a fake toy with like a fake gun and which was a real life occurrence at the time oh this no it's, it's really happened common. it's happened yeah. but it's also the kind of shit that corrupt cops have done mm. and to just to like get away with murder basically is like oh i thought they had a gun yeah and that's not that should not be a get out of jail free card and the whole his whole subplot is will he learn to heroically kill again yeah and that (laughs) doesn't go down the same way it used to no it certainly doesn't yeah yeah johnson makes it work better than you might think because he's such a good actor but it's it's a weird subplot and that part doesn't play great anymore but uh, everybody's really good in this movie. Reginald yeah. Van Johnson's really good. Bonnie Bedelia is really good. Yeah. Uh, William Atherton oh, uh, is, as, as the, the smarmy, creepy uh, reporter creep. guy. Uh, you also know William Atherton as the uh, the EPA guy from Ghostbusters. Yeah, Hart, but we mentioned Hart Bachner mm-hmm. as as Ellis, mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. the yuppie douche, uh, the ultimate yuppie douche. Yeah. <laughs> one, <laughs> one of the great movie yeah. yuppies. He thinks he can talk his way into the good graces of this homicidal maniac. It's like, Hans, mm-hmm. Booby. Yeah. And yeah. like, oh my god, throw all, him out all, a window. All he has is schmoozing, so he decides <laughs> to use that superpower, and it doesn't work out <laughs> for him. Uh, oh yeah, so I, I apologize for bringing up Die Hard again, because yeah. you've seen Die Hard. You don't Everybody need us to tell you I, great, I was at, at the end great. of the line on Die Hard, so I just, I wanted to mention Die Hard. No, I, I got I got a couple on mm. mine that are just, they, they're just that good, damn it. Mm. So, uh, but I'm going to finish I, off I my... I have a lot of, like, schlock and genre, genre films on my list. Well, I have a film, my next film, my last uh, film in the Die Dead Death realm mm. of the Ds is a film that I think... Is very beautifully halfway between schlock and genius. Mm. Uh, and it is a film that I always enjoyed. And then I revisited it for like the very first time in many years, uh, a couple of years ago. And I became absolutely convinced that this movie is more or less comedy perfection. <laughs> it's Death Becomes Her. Oh, I thought you were going to say uh, Duck Soup for a second. But oh, I, I like Duck death. Soup, but Duck Soup actually doesn't make me laugh it, as much as some of the other Marx Brothers movies. It to be Death Soup. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> a little dark. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, it's Rufus a... T. Fire Flamethrower. <laughs> Rufus T. Flamethrower. I think you're just thinking of The Devil's Rejects, which is not on my list. No, um, death Becomes Her is a horror comedy from director Robert Zemeckis, who at this point in his career 
was already like one of the biggest directors in Hollywood. He'd done the Back to the Future trilogy. Mm. He had done Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And he could probably have done anything he wanted. And what he wanted to do was be a ghoul. Because start, started produce. It was the executive producer on Tales from the Crypt. You yep. knew he had a big, big interest in ghoulish, sick horror. Yeah, and not but, just not just but, violent, but, but like people who are vicious and cruel, yeah, but in a but, funny but, way. That cruel, horrible people would laugh at. Yeah. yeah, and and that people who look down on cruel, horrible people would laugh at because bad things happen to the cruel and horrible people. Um, it's great. Mm. Uh, it stars uh, Meryl Streep. As an incredibly vain actress, uh, and uh, and, a, and a bad one at that, and not a good one, yeah. and uh, uh, but but famous and popular regardless, uh, and uh, she has a childhood friend played by Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn is engaged to a doctor played by Bruce Willis again. Bruce Willis, another Bruce Willis film, uh, and uh, Bruce Willis is such a fan of Meryl Streep that Meryl Streep steals him just because she can, just because she's horrible, and Goldie Hawn. Decides that she, at first she's like despondent and she's miserable for years, and then she vows revenge, and she vows revenge, and she's gonna come back into Bruce Willis's life. She's gonna get this, she has this gorgeous makeover, and she's gonna seduce him. You've made a huge mistake, and now we can be together. But dang it, Meryl Streep is still alive. That's yeah, that we can't but, do. We can't live with that. And in the interim, also Meryl Streep and uh, Bruce Willis's marriage has completely fallen apart. Oh, they're it's horrible. Like, like soap opera gallows, yeah. uh, where she's she's he's drinking a lot. Yeah. She she's completely failed. She's trying to get yeah. you know scrape together what little money she still has. Right. So he, there's this... he became a he became a mortician to make ends meet. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's very tales from the crypt. It's very very vicious and cruel and beautiful. Uh, and uh, so it becomes this whole like murder plot. Meanwhile, Meryl Streep has been visited by Isabella Rossellini. And Isabella Rossellini is immortal. And she has been basically subsidizing her extravagant lifestyle by every once in a while offering incredibly wealthy people eternal life and youth. Hmm. So in exchange for... A little little vial of potion. Yeah, in exchange for a little vial of potion uh, that that will keep Meryl Streep uh, taut and lovely forever. Meryl Streep will, you know, whatever. But like that's that's not the point. The point is Meryl Streep takes the potion. So now their murder victim is unkillable, and it leads to well, at, unbelievable, unbelievably gross visual effects. At, at first, they don't know that, and she doesn't even know that she can't die. Yeah, she just thought she was going to be young and then whatever. Yeah. But like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Like she, she like falls down some stairs and her neck gets twisted around entirely. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like attached with silly putty. She keeps like lifting it up and like jiggling it. And it's like flinging <laughs> just, around and it's twisting. You just see like her bones kind of pushing up against the inside of her skin. Incredibly hilarious yeah. bit where they take her to the emergency room and the doctor just doesn't understand why she doesn't have a pulse. And it's so fucking gross and weird. And then there's like all of these horrible fights where like, Holes get blown into people These giant cartoon perfect spheres And then they like Start sitting on chairs But like stuff like slides through the hole What a (laughs) fucking incredible This movie won best visual effects Not a lot of horror movies do that The visual effects in this movie Are like three decades old 
they're perfect. Yeah, they're pretty they look dazzling. so good, and they're yeah, so they, natural. They used all of us, uh, and it's not CG. They used a lot of like compositing and in-camera yeah. stuff. Yeah, uh, I think there's some CG, but it was early CG. Yeah. It's not as much as you might think. Um, yeah, like uh, they, they like created a few things here and yeah. there, like the things sliding through holes in people's bodies. That's, that was done with CG, but yeah. um, the. Uh, you can f- find like behind the scenes footage of them filming Meryl Streep because they had to like film her head and her body at separate times. Yeah. Uh, so you can see but she's like, like wearing her whole body backwards and shit. Yeah. Like, oh, it's so so, but they composited them together and it, yeah. it's still, yeah, it's pretty impeccable. Meryl Streep is funny. People forget that. She's everyone like, okay, Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, fine. L- look at that. Look at Death Becomes Her and look at She Devil. She's a genius in those. Like, she's really. This movie is unbelievably hilarious, unbelievably dark. Really aesthetic. It actually is thoughtful about its like its mm. its gross themes. Like you can yeah. actually get something meaningful out of it. Um, it's maybe my. It, honestly, if I'm if I'm between this and Roger Rabbit for me for best <laughs> for, for, for Robert Zemeckis' mm. best film. Like for me, it's those two. Yeah, I think they're just absolutely unique and perfect. And I love Death Becomes Her. And if you haven't seen mm. it, or if you haven't seen it lately, check it out. It's so fucking good. Best Zemeckis film. That's a tough one because he's made a lot of really good he ones. Really, I, and I, and I that like is not the, a slight against Back to the Future movies. Those are great movies as well. Well, and I feel like he's always tried to do really interesting things and try to tell yeah. interesting stories with special effects. Um, I, I I love the the climax of the film The Walk. Uh, oh, it's so great. Because I saw it on a gigantic screen in 3D. Oh, uh, so even if you really even cool. if you watch it now, you're not going to get sort of the full effect no. uh, because it was meant to be seen on a big screen in 3D. Very, I, I'm trying uh, not to be precious with all like, you have to see on the big screen. The walk would the, the not walk work. Was, yeah, the you, walk was one of them. You probably still like it. You're not going to get the same effect. It's so fucking great yeah, on the big I'm, screen. I'm fond of Cast Away. I even like What Lies Beneath because that yeah. also has sort of a Tales from the Crypt sensibility. That's why I, I think the movie's too long, but other than that, it's really clever. Uh, ag- works. Agreed. Yeah. And, and it looks great. Like they actually built the whole house, mm-hmm. like an f- actual functioning house because it needed to look a certain way. Yeah. Uh, Written by Clark Gregg. That's right. He was, yeah. a, he was a screenwriter uh, yeah. as well as an actor. And... Um, even though I don't like his mocap animated films, mm. I appreciate that he was trying to push that forward a little bit. I still um, haven't seen his um, uh, Christmas Carol. Yeah. Uh, but Beowulf was a neat idea. Yeah, Beowulf was worked, a neat idea. But it was a neat idea. Uh, Grendel spoke in a Middle English. Just do that with all the characters. Have I, them speak Middle English. That yeah, would have been great. I mean, you're already, you're already dancing around, like, uh, mm. marketability. Why not? I, that's my favorite thing about that movie, though, is Grendel looks scary as fuck. Yeah. Grendel's they they really actually designed Grendel really well. Yeah. But then they turned uh, Grendel's mother into Angelina Jolie. who's like a and they gold added, bikini and, and, they and stuff. And added a bunch of weird shit. Like, it doesn't work. Yeah. But anyway. Anyway, uh, but anyway, that's my number eight. What's your number seven? Uh, what is my number seven? I don't know. Um, that's why I asked you. Well, we're we're dealing with dead. We're dealing with death. Why not deal with the devils? Hey, that's uh, on my list too. <laughs> yay! Uh, like I said, these, this is mostly like just a, a, comb- a collection of some of my favorite genre films. Uh, mm. Not necessarily some of the best. Uh, this I, no, I put this one. I meant it. This I think this one's on the best. Okay. For me. uh, this and this was another one that I actually I, just recently discovered, like a couple months ago. For me, there was like six time. movies on my list that I had no debate in my mind. These mm. are definitely making the list, and then right. I agonized over what the other four would be. Mm. But the Devils was always on there. Okay, yeah, the the Devils. Uh, we talked about recently because I had seen it for the first time recently. Uh, as seen in the movie Space Jam, A New Legacy. <laughs> I'll never get over that. Uh, so fucking the weird. lead character is, uh, well, one of the lead characters, a character named Sister Jen. She uh, lives in a convent who is being visited by 
hunky priest, uh, Oliver Reed, who has very liberal views of sex and marriage as it pertains to Christianity. Uh, a lot of Christian orders, even to this day, are uh, very uh, preach chastity and mm. uh, sexual closedness. And he's saying, what's wrong with sleeping around? There's nothing not Christian about that. Yeah. In fact, there's nothing not Christian about priests marrying. So I'm going to marry. And they say, you can't do that. Fuck you, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And he goes to a, a convent. Uh, he's so sexy. <laughs> and he's Oliver Reed, so you buy it. And yeah, he's Oliver yeah. Reed, and he just sort of exudes sexuality. He's so open about sexuality <laughs> that he kind of throws these very repressed nuns into a complete tizzy. Yeah. At the same time, Cardinal Richelieu is trying to tamp him down, which causes this weird conflict of ideas that just sort of makes the entire convent explode into demonic horniness. Yeah, basically it becomes mm -hmm. this uh, sort of mass hysteria mm -hmm. where uh, all of the nuns uh, decide that they will, whether they're, some of them seem to be conscious of it, some of them seem to be just going along for the ride, some of them might actually believe it. Uh, basically they start acting like they are possessed by demons and they start having a non-stop gigantic sacrilegious orgy mm -hmm. in the church. Like they're like, they're, they're, there's actually like a statue of Christ and they're actually like making out with it. And that's like, that's pretty yeah, uh, fucking in your face, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like that's like the Ken Russell was not uh, subtle. <laughs> Nor was he afraid no, of controversy. Uh, Ken, he was inviting it. Ken, Ken Russell liked to slap you around a little bit, even when his movies are bad. Yeah. Which, and he's made some bad he's ones. He's made some bad yeah. ones. I haven't seen them he's, all, but I haven't seen a few bad he, ones. He's reached a little far. I, yeah. I I know you're a fan of gothic, but Ken Russell's gothic is is kind of a chore to sit through. Oh, I I, uh, I disagree. I like I think it's a, like I like the first half movie, is but... kind of interesting, but then it's like by the time everybody's like zonked out on laudanum and just sort of running into walls and shit, it's like get on with it. Come on, no, wrap I, this up. I, I like all of that. Mm. I like I I think gothic's wonderful, but mm. fair enough. I'll, I I appreciate mm. it's. Uh, you have to really want to see Gothic. Yeah, I guess so. Go Gothic was Ken Russell's movie about uh, the night that Frankenstein was conceived. Uh, uh, Frankenstein and uh, and the vampire. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah the, uh, Paul Dori's uh, uh, very influential vampire novel. Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, uh, Lord Byron, and uh, Paul Dori. Uh, Zeppo uh, is Polidori. is Polidori. Yeah, he's, they all he's always they, fourth on the list. They all they all got together for a night of hedonism, and they ended up uh, very famously. That ended up like the origin of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was. They all decided to write horror stories, mm. and um, yeah. But it turns out other people wrote other stories that night as well. Some of them were actually really important, and uh, yeah, they were all hedonistic weirdos, mm. and it was a horrible night. <laughs> and that's that whole movie. It's just it's hedonism <laughs> and horror, and it's great. But anyway, The Devils is actually after something a bit more grand. Like, it's, the goth it's, Gothic is more in microcosm. Devils is about, like, all of religion and society. It's, it's about yeah. try, trying to unpack uh, just the inherent hypocrisy in... Um, it, essentially with Christianity uh, yeah. in, in particular, the Catholic Church in particular, Christianity in general, and humanity at large yeah. at the end of the day. Uh, in that... This idea of trying to control others is only going to cause a lack of control, and it's all all of that is in there, and I, I really highly highly recommend it. It shows up uh, here and there on streaming services. Yeah, it pops up and then it vanishes. Again. It's never and really the, had a very. It's never had a good like mm. DVD or Blu-ray release in America. You can get like an import, uh, but uh, you can every once in a while it'll show up on Shutter mm. or Amazon or something. And when that happens, run. To see it, but remember, it is intentionally shocking. So, 
It, you have to be get, yeah, be, um, be be prepared for some for a whole lot of sacrilege. It's made us sometimes the midnight movie circuit, but you're never really sure which cut of the movie you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, it's not had a proper Blu-ray release. It was released on a very very difficult to find DVD at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was all brought up when Sister Jeanne did show up in Space Jam. Yeah, that they're willing, a new legacy, uh, not Space Jam, a new legacy. That they're they're the company was willing to put this character in their kids' movie as a background as, character, as, as a background as a, character, one of their as a many little intellectual bit of, property yeah, that little, they're proud of. A, yeah, a little bit of an Easter egg, something to to mm-hmm. show off. But they're not willing to actually show yeah. you the movie. And what's weird is that she's not just in like one shot, tiny in the background. She's like. She's throughout the second half of that. The film. whole second half of that movie, she's standing behind Don Cheadle. It's weird, um, uh, and, and that they anyway. And it's been brought up. Uh, Sister Jeanne, uh, Baby Jane, and the Droogs from A Clockwork Orange are all in there, but Pepe Le Pew is too controversial. Yeah, it's weird. Um, well, actually, while we're on that subject of uh, of Space Jam, oh no, uh, my next pick is a, is a film that I came the, very the very Space Jam. I came very I came very very close to picking this as my number one, oh. and I decided I couldn't because there's another movie I think is greater uh but it doesn't get a lot greater than duck amok <laughs> yay i'm so proud of you duck um, well you 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 broke the casing on this because uh, i was originally thinking when we were doing this that we were only doing feature films and the last time we did it you picked uh uh, uh a, a looney tune Memory I, serves. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You picked the Looney once, and I was like, oh, I didn't know we could do that. I think I picked Bully for Bugs on our B list, mm. which is one of my favorite Looney Tunes. Mm. Maybe. I don't think it was Bully for Bugs. Mm. You picked something though. Mm. Um, but uh, in any case, Duck Amuck. Mm. I, is... I I didn't put Duck Amuck on my list, yeah. but I did put Drip Along Daffy on my list. <laughs> is that is that your number uh, five? It's, is it one it's, the... it's not. It was on my runners. It's out. on your runners out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, d- there's actually quite a few great. D uh, uh, Looney Tunes. It was between this and um, uh, uh, Duck Dodgers. Is okay, another classic. Yeah. Um, and um, what's the one? Uh, uh, what's the one with Rat Wabbit season? Oh, it's um, um, uh, seasoning. Hair is it seasoning? Just, or, it, um, it's rabbit seasoning. Rabbit seasoning. Rabbit seasoning. Rabbit seasoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Duck and Muck is. Maybe the most brilliantly conceived Looney Tune. Now, Looney Tunes, of course, uh, often take the form of uh, we meet our cartoon hero. Mm. Some jerk comes along and disrupts them in some way. And then uh, they abuse them horribly for our amusement. And uh, they deserve it because they're jerks. Mm. Um, in the case of Duck and Muck, uh, they're the same person. It's Daffy Duck. Uh, I apologize. I uh... That gag was in uh, Rabbit Seasoning, but Rabbit Fire was the first one. That was the original. Okay. Was the was, it was done twice. The, both it's actually done three times. Chuck Jones made three very similar cartoons. Oh, that's right. But they're all Rabbit good. Fire was the first one. In any case, uh, Duck and Muck stars uh, Daffy Duck. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is in the middle of starting off his latest cartoon, if memory serves. I believe he starts off as some sort of like Three Musketeers type character. Yeah. And then they he's... They taste my blade. Yeah. Yes, and he starts like flinging his blade around and he starts moving further and further to the side of the screen. And then he sees that the scenery behind him has not been painted yet. Mm. So he turns to the animator, who is us... And he says, hey, where's the scenery? And then the animator puts in scenery and the scenery isn't as yeah, we, good. We see or... gi- giant pencils and paintbrushes yeah. enter the frame and add, yeah. add the details. And then the scenery isn't right. And so he changes the cartoon 
to adjust to the scenery, but then the scenery changes again. But, and then and he da- starts Daffy Duck, however, ever the professional yes. is adapting to the scenario. So yes. he's on a farm, it's like they shall taste my blade. Okay, and he leaves and he dresses up as a, a farmer. Yeah. It's like I'm gonna do a farming cartoon. Daffy now. Ducky yeah. had a farm. E I E I O. And on that farm he had an igloo. E I E I Oh. <laughs> and then he just talks to the animator. It's like, hey, is the, is consistency too much to ask for here? Can we just can we make up our minds? And what follows is Daffy Duck's absolutely mind blowing <laughs> existential fight argument with, with God. Fight with reality itself. Yeah. God itself is an animator that can't make up its mind, but has decided that Daffy Duck is going to have the worst day imaginable. Mm-hmm. There are so many brilliant gags in this. There are gags uh, regarding uh, film strips. Mm-hmm. There are gags regarding uh, uh, you know ending the cartoon early. There are gags regarding uh, the sudden appearance and reappearance of new objects. There are gags involving multiple Daffies. Um, Looney Tunes have, I think, more so than most of the Disney cartoons, which is what most of their competition was for a while, uh, a sense of self-awareness where the characters knew they were in a cartoon. They knew they could manipulate reality. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily talk about it, but they could look to the audience or they could uh, control their environment. Yeah. And here that is taken completely away from them. And there's something horrifying about it. Like, I actually feel really bad for Daffy. Daffy started off as just kind of a kooky character, but quickly evolved into this incredibly vainglorious creation who is the hero because we love him and he never succeeds. But he's also the bad guy because he's only out for number one. He only cares about mm-hmm. himself. He's vain, uh, very career obsessed. Yeah, just a just a mm-hmm. absolute asshole. But he never succeeds, so it's okay to appreciate his journey. <laughs> and here, this is the ultimate "Let's Torture Daffy" cartoon. Mm-hmm. And the ending, which I won't ruin for you in case you haven't seen it, perfection. <laughs> like the way that they decide to wrap this thing up is sad. Funny raises a lot of questions. Like this is actually like this. I remember seeing this cartoon for the first time when I was very small, probably like four, mm. and I literally like could feel like a like a synapse in my brain pop. This goes, what? That can happen. That, <laughs> we can do that with cinema. Mm. We we're gonna ask these questions. We can relate the creation of cinema to the creation of the universe. Like it's actually without going into a lot of detail, it evokes so many fascinating questions and conversations on top of simply being one of the funniest cartoons ever made. Like it's <laughs> yeah. really right up there. Like it's certainly in my top three funniest Looney Tunes. Um, no, I want to give a I want to give a shout out actually to uh, real fast although it is my inimitable mention, uh, which I want I always get the title wrong. Uh, oh, which uh, Looney Tunes? Uh, the Dover Boys at Pimento University, oh, yeah, or the rivals of Rockford Hall, yeah. is I'll mention it again when we do my R- runners R- up. Rockford Hall, yeah, yeah. Um, boy, is that the f- that move? That's also really funny. <laughs> there's not there's nothing thoughtful about it. It's just really fucking funny. <laughs> Uh, I a runabout. I'll steal it. No one, one will, will ever know. know. <laughs> <laughs> the Dover Boys are so funny. Uh, yeah, and I've I've, I've already said that uh, yeah. Drip Along Daffy is is far and away one of my very favorite Looney Tunes yeah. cartoons. It's just so funny. 
It's a, it's a it's a work of genius, and Duck mm-hmm. Dodgers is brilliant as well. Like they're, they're when you have a Daffy Duck cartoon that's on fire, there's nothing better. <laughs> yeah, oh my god! All right, what's uh, what's well, your? What's, I'm glad you chose Duck Amok. Yeah. That that is really great. Yeah. What's your number? What's your number uh, six? Let's I guess. See, I don't have anything with ducks. Uh, I, I duck soup is an honorable mention. I think duck yeah. soup is one of the great comedy classics, mm-hmm. um, like of all time. I, I but but again, not, you don't need me to tell you to watch duck soup. I rewatched it not that long ago and I found it a little slow. I think, uh, yeah. in terms of like laughs, I think monkey business and horse feathers are, uh, are funnier. Yeah. But du- duck soup has like higher concept and a much more ambitious film. So it gets points for me, uh, there. Fair enough. Um, I don't have any ducks, but I do have some monsters Ooh. that all need to be destroyed. Uh, so I'm going to choose oh. destroy all monsters. How, I should have known you're going to. How did? Yeah, go, goodness sake! I bring up destroy all monsters all the time. Uh, destroy all monsters is uh, the Godzilla movie. Yeah, the, 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 the pinnacle of Godzilla movies. You know, I haven't seen every Godzilla movie, mm. but of the Godzilla movies I've seen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Destroy All Monsters was when they they essentially went Avengers Endgame on our ass and, and just yeah. put all of the, all of the monsters mm-hmm. in one movie. Turns um, out they all live in the same apartment, and by apartment I mean island because they're giants, so it's about mm-hmm. the same you know scale size. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, uh, it came out in 1968, uh, and it followed uh, the model of a few of the previous movies where two monsters have to team up to take out King Ghidorah. King Ghidorah is sort yeah. of the uh, the stalwart supervillain of the Godzilla universe. King Ghidorah is always a bad guy. King Ghidorah, yeah. uh, to a much lesser extent, Gigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even know what the hell Gigan is. It's like a, an electric robot goose monster thing. Um, I have no memory of Gigan specifically. They, they all, they all kind of blur thing, together. It's the thing with like, an, it has like a beak, but also like a metal or like a, a light up eye display. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's I Gigan. Think I, I think I confuse them sometimes with mm. that... Um, that one uh, kind of bird-like Gamera villain. Rodan? No, Gamera villain. Oh, um... Uh, 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 is it Gu- Not Guiron. Guiron? Um, Guiron. Uh, Gaos. Gaos. Gaos yeah, is the Gaos. flying one. Yeah, he remind, I, I think I used to confuse him with Gaos. Okay. Uh, <laughs> either way. Either, yeah, you you mixed up Gigan and Gaos. Yeah. You just lost a Schmodown question. If you're if you're uh, thinking to yourself, wow, that's that's really, really nerdy... That's 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 how people used to think about Marvel characters. Like, and now every now it's just normal. So wait till Godzilla, Godzilla make a comeback, yeah. proper comeback someday. But anyway. I mean, they, they've been trying in the United States over and over again. They've made the you know, yeah. King Kong versus Godzilla. It's like okay, you're 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 in the camp now, but you're yeah. still nowhere near yeah. <laughs> what, what you need to be. There's here. stuff I like about all of them, but mm-hmm. none of the, the closest one that's actually great is Kong Skull Island. That movie's fine. I suppose so. That movie's got all the monster fight and action you can watch. I actually did like, I appreciated that they tried to go just full bore idiotic with the last one. And then, oh, and it turns out there's a whole lost world at the center of the earth. And that's where King Kong gets his magical axe. You know, that kind of. Oh, you know, his magical axe that he always has. It's, it's, the film is made with such earnestness, but it was written by an enthused eight year old. So I appreciate that. I I wish I'd had that, they'd had that tone in uh, 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 Godzilla King of the Monsters. Because there's that's actually really beautiful monster shit in that movie, mm. and if they just had a little bit of goofiness to it, I think it would have been perfect. But anyway. the the Japanese Godzilla movies, especially of the Showa era, like the first seventeen or so movies, uh, were the first seventeen. Yeah, uh, were uh, 
before it got before it got were good. able to strike that tone. Like they were they were earnestly presented, but they were also incredibly silly. When you uh, when they you were, couldn't hide behind yeah. good visual effects, you had to do that. Yeah, so like, it's we'll just, take it seriously. But when the mods are so up, it's like we know. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you you need to use your imagination here. What's going on here? Well, it turns out I'm a space alien, and we belong to a race of space aliens. We've been hiding amongst you. So what is it with the monsters? Ah, yes, we've been controlling the monsters. To do what? Well, we like to watch monsters fight. And when we get into the tub, we like to bring our monster toys in with us. And you know, like it, It's like this close to being, and, and then and then like a five-year-old telling a story. Uh, so yeah, Godzilla teams up with Mothra, Rodan, Anguirus, Gorosaurus, uh, not talked about a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. Same with Menda, Kumonga, Varan, Baragon, and of course, Godzilla's son, Minila, Minila, to all team up and fight King Ghidorah. We didn't What's... really need Manila. No. We didn't really need Manila. sort of like the, yeah. uh, the um, go between between the monster world and the human world. Minia sucks. Yeah. yeah. So, so, <laughs> son of Godzilla and all monsters attack, the ones that sort of highlight Minila are, are pretty bad. Um, yeah. Might be the worst ones. Uh, I haven't seen them all, but they're pretty bad. But this one is pretty much all monster mayhem all the time, and it's all the monsters fighting at once, and there's a lot of destruction. It's all you want. It's all you want. You want to see yeah. guys in rubber monster suits stomping on miniature Toho sets and wailing on each other. Uh, and you want to say, yeah, and then you eat another handful of Cinnamon Toast <laughs> Crunch straight out of the box, and you go, Godzilla! <laughs> you know, we, we, like, there's there's an eight-year-old inside of me that just comes to life uh, whenever I watch a Godzilla movie, and this is one of, one of the pinnacles of that. We like to mock fan service, but there is something to be said for just giving people what they want. <laughs> there really is. And uh, and you well, can if, do it. if you're being uh, upfront about yeah. it, I think that's okay. I, I agree. And so I think that's why uh, we, we've often argued that the greatest fan service movie ever made is Freddy versus Jason. Oh yeah, Which for if sure. you love Freddy, if you love the whole Freddy genre, if you love the whole Freddy franchise, if you love the whole Jason franchise, every single thing you could conceivably want from a crossover, which by its nature is going to be goofy. You can't do like a serious... Freddy movie. You just can't. It's going to be weird. Everything you want is in there. You get all the fighting you want. You get them fighting in the Dream World. You get them fighting in, in Camp Crystal Lake. You get a follow-up to Dream Warriors and how it leads to this whole conspiracy with the town. You <laughs> it, get Jason killing people. You get Freddy killing it, people. It weirdly, it's gorgeous. Ronnie Yu knows how to shoot a movie. It weirdly like calls back to some of the conceits from New Nightmare, which is yeah. like the meta-narrative. Yeah, it's actually like really fucking good. Like you, th- th- uh, My point is... Fan service isn't necessarily a bad thing. Hmm. Fan service can be done but really, it, really but well. It's, uh, Freddy versus Jason is also like based on a lot of like clunky, dumb ideas. Exactly. Like they're bending over backwards to get these two monsters together. This is why I, I when it comes to fan service, I much hmm. prefer something like Freddy versus Jason, or to a different extent, it's more hmm. your franchise than mine, but hmm. destroy all monsters. Than even like the last act of Avengers Endgame, which I know has like all this shit that's like everything people wanted yeah. to see. And yeah. to an extent, me too. There's cool stuff in there. And I, you know, when Captain America with Thor's hammer, I'm like, neat. <laughs> that's neat. I like that. That's yeah. fun. Thank you. But like, it's it's also just rings a little hollow at the end because they also really want us to take it like super duper seriously. Yeah. Freddy vs. Jason doesn't want us to do that. No. Destroyal Monster doesn't want they they know that they're are, uh, they're reaching our lizard brain. Yeah, and they're not they're, apologizing they, for that. Because heroes are supposed to be sort of fighting for heroic things. Monsters are monsters. <laughs> monsters Especially big monsters. Yeah, mon- Once you have human sized monsters, they have pathos. They, they, like, no, 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 they no, no, no. wreck stuff. You know, you watch a monster <laughs> stomping on buildings and yeah, you're like five years old stomping on a sandcastle. It's it there's like yeah. a, a visceral 
death drive yeah. within every small child to wreck stuff. And I think uh, Godzilla <laughs> movies appeal to that in a very uh, safe sort of way. Nice. It, it's not dark. These things, these films are very, very bright. It's not until you get to the CGI era where you'd see like Godzilla at night in the rain. It's really scary. And you know, Godzilla can be scary. Yeah. But something I've always appreciated about a lot of the Godzilla movies that come from Japan is that is their clarity. They film yeah. Godzilla because we're here to see the thing and we want yeah. to see Godzilla's enormity. Yeah, we're not trying to we're not going to keep him at bay for two thirds of the movie. We're not going to only see his foot. Like, no, no. we want to see we you paid to see Godzilla. Hmm. Here he is. Hey, he'll hey, be yeah. signing autographs after the show. Hey, Gareth Edwards. <laughs> Hey, asshole, listen up. <laughs> I actually like that movie, but yeah, yeah. after a while, just show us the fucking monster. Come on. Yeah, it's like, you can tease it for so long, and they, te- yeah. they teased it for way too long. They overdid yeah. it. I wasn't mad at it. I actually liked the initial bit where like you're super convinced that they're just going to unleash Godzilla, mm. and then it turns out it's the monster Godzilla is going to fight. That's clever. That, that's a good subversion. That's that works. Okay. That works. But then once but then, we get yeah. to see Godzilla... Let it. He's out now. Well, they, 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 and they, they, they was, rabbits out of the hat. Just the show everyone the rabbit. Is, there you was know? there was this uh, shot in that movie where they, they we finally got the glory shot of Godzilla. It's yeah. like we've seen hints of it, and then we see this full body shot. The camera yeah. pans up, and he's you even see Godzilla, doing, and he roars, and you think, okay, this, like, you're going to do boxing stance too. Like yeah. he's ready to rumble, <laughs> and and so that's when the monster mayhem begins, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Then they, they cut to they, a television. They cut to a television, like, <laughs> after the fact. They cut to a TV, like, a news report of what happens. And it's not even focused on the TV. No, There's action in the kitchen. And they a part of me thought that was really funny, but I also agree it's a total ripoff. Like, do that earlier <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. It's funny. You, you, then, it yeah, was a the, funny idea. But now is not the time for jokes. Now is yeah, the time the, for Godzilla. Then there's a glory shot later on where he's char- Godzilla's charging down a street and they literally close a door in front of the audience. It's like, okay, now you're just fucking. Come on, us. dude. Jesus. Anyway. Wait, this doesn't need to be two hours. No Godzilla movie should be a second over like 93 minutes. Yeah. And that's with credits. 30 minutes set up. 30 minutes Godzilla and other monsters getting together. 30 minutes just the fight. That's that's the yeah. formula. Stick to it. Pretty much. <laughs> All right, so we're we're halfway through our list, uh, and uh, my list is starting to get a little more serious. Uh, we've had a lot of schlock and exploitation, and uh, we're starting to get some movies that actually like are really emotional and meaningful to me. But there's one movie I think actually covers the transition pretty well okay. because it is a very smart, thoughtful, meaningful, potent motion picture. It's also funny as fuck. Doctor Strange Love, or <laughs> How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I, I was torn as to whether or not I should recommend this because this yeah. is another one that's really really famous it, but it's so good uh, I it, couldn't oh golly is it it's uh, one of like, yeah, it's one of like is... the two movies on here that are like they're probably cliches but they're so good yeah. I didn't I felt weird leaving it off the list you put in Die Hard I took uh, care of this um, one uh, yeah, Doctor Strangelove is Stanley Kubrick's film made in in the early '60s uh, at a time when the world was concerned with nuclear proliferation. Uh, yeah. the the general consensus the, uh, was we could die at any possible second yeah, because was, at the uh, at the end of the day, uh, dudes had their fingers on the trigger and it was all a big ego contest between yeah. America and Russia. L- literally about penises, as yeah. as uh, Stanley Kubrick makes explicit yeah you, you can talk about like you know like oh well we have to make sure we protect ourselves and oh yes well we have to make sure that like if they have weapons we have to have just as many weapons so they, otherwise they, they, the, they called it the balance of power yeah and uh what dr strangelove presupposes is what if it's just a dick measuring contest and here's the thing it is and it always was it was always about fragile ego specifically male ego 
Mm. about not wanting to be the one who backed down. You can't show weakness. And because no one wants to show weakness, no one wants to be sane Mm. and prevent the end of the world. And that's what Dr. Strangelove is about. Mm. Dr. Strangelove is about, at the height of the Cold War, uh, all of a sudden, one guy, he's he's a high-ranking general, but he's not, like, in charge of anything. Right. He's not, like, the Secretary of Defense or the President or anything. Uh, Played by Sterling Hayden. Amazing uh, Sterling Hayden. Uh, he has... He finds out he's impotent. And it breaks his brain. And so in well, it's, order... It's not revealed to later in the movie, but no, yeah. I'm, I'm just... I'm cutting ahead. It's not, uh-huh. it's not a mind-blower. Uh, but uh, he finds out he's impotent. It breaks his brain. And he decides that the only thing he can do to assert himself... Uh, is to jumpstart World War II. So basically, when the president would call and like say, we're going to World War III, I'm pressing the button, the button doesn't just unleash all the missiles. The button tells all the other generals what to do. Mm-hmm. So one of those generals just started doing it. And now, all of a sudden, there's a, there are nuclear bombers headed towards Russia, rogue, not answering anybody, and all of the American politicians have to meet inside the war room and try to find a way to stop this madness before it's too late, even though they're all incompetent idiots. They're incompetent and they're they're standing on, like, politeness. Yeah. At this, like, everything's desperate, but they still have to be polite to one another. They have to put on, they have to put on the mm. facade of uh, respectability and diplomacy, even though what we really need to do is just stop all of this from happening. What the hell? And... The, the the real nightmare comes when uh, they find out that even if only one bomber sneaks through, the Russians have a doomsday device that will destroy the entire world in retaliation. It was supposed to be like the bomb to end all bombs. But they hadn't told anyone about it yet because the president of Russia likes surprises. God. Fuck. <laughs> Oh uh, god, this fucking movie. And uh, and you haven't even mentioned Peter Sellers yet, who plays no. three different roles in the movie. He plays yeah. the president. Uh, he plays uh, President Merkin. Merkin Muffley. All of his character names are, are uh, jokes about sex. There's Merkin yeah. Muffley. A Merkin is a, a mm. name for a pubic wig. Mm. Uh, he plays Doctor Strange Love, mm. uh, who is an ex-Nazi scientist who's not that ex, and he's working for the American <laughs> government. And he but, plays, but a, not be difficult, mind Führer. I mean, Mister President. <laughs> yeah, like he <laughs> slips up occasionally. Uh, and what's, uh, what's yeah. his name? Was it Lionel Mangrove or something? Lionel Mandrake. Lionel Mandrake yeah. uh, is a British officer who's stationed uh, with uh, Sterling Hayden, and he's trying to talk sense mm. into the guy. And, yeah. uh, and, f- and from what I understand, then there's a fourth group of people that the soldier, the American soldiers aboard the bomber. Yeah. That is always in flight. And it's uh, Peter Sellers was originally going to play the pilot, but he decided playing that many characters was just yeah, he, e- he, too much even for him. He, he said that uh, like he was sick or it was too much hard work. He just didn't, actually didn't want to do it. So it was like, it's of, too much. Got to lied to Kubrick there. And so but, like um, there was supposed to be another Peter Sellers and instead they got Slim Pickens, who is perfect in the role oh he's just great and the the and, story including, and including a small role a uh, very early role from james earl jones he's one yeah. of the soldiers in the plane yeah god they're funny it's one of those movies where like everything is delivered so dry mm. you you're not 100 percent sure and apparently this is true not every member of the cast was told it was a comedy and I heard Slim Pickens yeah. was one of them. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it has to be uh, told really straight because this is actually really chilling subject matter. And yeah. they're pointing out the absurdity of world politics at the time. Yeah, they're not, this poking, idea they're not parodying of, uh, it in like some dorky way. They're mm. saying, this is what's actually happening. It is this stupid. Mm. 
And in order to do that, it had to be believable. And uh, it, in or ordinary American politics, you know, we always had kind of assumed it was that way. Uh, it became really explicit uh, during the whole uh, Donald Trump, Kim Jong-un uh, oh, yeah. saber-rattling competition that was going yeah. on a couple of years ago. And then they started Where we writing... all thought we were going to die. And then it ended uh, with them, like, writing each other love letters, which uh, was weird. And... and, and and the president of the United States is inviting despots to the White House saying, hey, they're good. They like me. Yeah, the despots uh, are the best ones. Um, Fuck you, goddamn. Kubrick, Kubrick could not have written it better. Oh it was God. it was like a political satire playing out in real time. Yeah. I, I I weep mm. for the for the filmmakers in the future uh, who will doc who will make movies about that. Mm. And I'm hoping we're reaching it's it's gonna reach an end. I don't know if it ever will at this point. But the, hopefully that will, that will be like a chapter that will close, and then like a generation later, they will do it incredibly accurately, and everyone will reject it because there's no way it was that stupid. And nope. we, and those of us who survive, yes, will we'll say it was the stupidest thing ever. If you ever saw Doctor Strange Love, it was like that, mm. but stupider. Doctor Strange Love is, you know, it feels like a satire, but it's also really spot on and now that the kind mm. of over the years the veil has been repeatedly lifted on world politics and you realize that just how much of this the, the the safety of the world is based on the hopeful dream that we have competent people in charge mm -hmm. when actually you do not have to be competent to be in charge at all you can totally end up with those roles and be a moron mm. and it's terrifying. Yeah. It's funny and it's terrifying, and yeah. it's such a brilliant film. Well, I have uh, I have a um, another movie that's kind of about the end of the world. Ooh. Kind of, it's about a warning about the end of the world. Is is it hmm. uh, a, a a particular day? It's about a day that the Earth stood still. And okay, uh, what's it, what's it called? Uh, it's called the day the Earth stood still. It's oh, okay. a rubber wise film from the fifties. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go into too much detail because we talked about the day the earth stood still recently on our uh, episode zero podcast. But it's so uh, damn good. But it is very, very good. Uh, it's about an alien that lands in Washington, D.C., flying saucer, lands in a big baseball field. Alien walks out. The military shoot him in the hand because they're dicks. <laughs> and when he's crumpled on the ground, a big robot comes out. This is Gort. And Gort vaporizes all the weapons. And the alien says, my name is Klaatu. I need to talk to all of your world leaders. And uh, they say, that's a little, humans say, that's a little difficult because, you know, we're, we're not really on the best of terms. And he says, well, that's kind of why you're fucked. And uh, <laughs> he spends most of the movie, uh, he's played by Michael Rennie, trying to evade uh, the authorities and get a gathering together with the world leaders so he can actually deliver a warning from space. And yeah. if, if the ending of the movie is pretty well known, he essentially says, if you guys don't start to get along, you're going to essentially destroy yourselves uh, because we have this race of robots mm -hmm. that are like the galaxy police. And if you start drifting out into the stars with all your weapons and you mm -hmm. haven't fixed the, you know, had world peace among yourselves, yeah. these guys will essentially kill you. Basically, if you're petulant mm -hmm. children who can't be trusted mm -hmm. with your own weapons, then we can't trust you out in the universe and you will mm. be trapped where you are forever it's basically it's half like the the book of uh like like it's half like um uh, jesus christ he's like he's yeah, a christ-like figure mm. who comes to earth to deliver a message about our potential salvation but it's also got a little this catholic kind of like old, guilt thing old going testament wrathful yeah. god kind of feeling yeah it's actually it, got yeah. some, some fuck it's it's an interesting 
parable and it's a fascinating film uh it's from director robert wise and it came at a time when science fiction was not particularly well respected in cinema hmm. there were some good science fiction films out there but it wasn't like uh, it, was, it was B material. It was B material yeah. and uh, and often very schlocky. And Robert Wise made a film that was actually incredibly mature and thoughtful and mm-hmm. actually uh, was well, so damn good and so well constructed. And the visual effects were so impressive for the time that even at the time people were like, uh, shit, this one's good. Yeah, well, that, that, that's the good one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This Com- is the exception co- to the rule. There yeah, will never co- be any more good ones of these. I don't think Compared to fun. other science fiction films at the time, it was yeah, yeah market, markedly mature. Mm. Uh, and uh, it, it d- deals with uh, peace and fighting and human nature in mm. sort of a big macro sort of way. Uh it looks to the stars and says that that's the next step. Yeah. Uh, it was at a time when we were very sort of optimistic about the heavens, but there was also a, a little bit of, of fear and of terror lurking yeah. in the stars. And so we were coming up with all of these uh, alien stories in the 1950s. Well, we were looking uh, at it, like... it sort of all came to a, I'd say it came to a head in 1968 with uh, 2001 a space odyssey. Uh, I, it yeah. I think, I think that's almost so enigmatic though, that I think it's hard. Yeah. To but like, there's, there's yeah. a, a think, mysterious grandeur about space yeah. in I, 2001 that I think the day the earth stood still is just starting to hint at. I think when you look at a film like the day the earth stood still hmm. uh, in particular, what you're looking at is people who are interested in science fiction. People who aren't like dismissing it out of hand using that particular genre to do something that is very hard to do in any other genre, which mm. is let's look at humanity from an outsider's perspective. Yeah. You can look at humanity relatively objectively, like from a, a, an impartial mm. observer and say, what is humanity doing? You can't do that in any other genre. Even mm. if you end up in like a religious thing, that's arguably fantasy because not everyone's going to believe in that religion. Mm. So you can't like just, it, it, it's weird. So yeah. the day the earth still has a unique for the time opportunity to look down on everyone in the audience <laughs> and say we want to lift you up science wants mm. to lift you up philosophy wants to lift you up like like it's, decency it's wants to lift you up but we are trapped mm. in these endless cycles of paranoia and we can't go anywhere until we solve that mm. and that's a big ask and we are we are as bad off in some respects as we were back then when it comes to paranoia mm. and mistrusting and people. And um, that sucks. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. I like we, we've moved forward in some ways. We've moved backwards or laterally in others. Mm. And it just, I will we ever deserve the, the future promise in the day the earth stood still yeah, well, if we well, get our shit together. Uh, it's, it's uh, notable that one of the, um, one of the one of the symbols used in the day the earth stood still is a military cemetery. Yeah, this came out in the fifties. This is after World War Two, and there's a lot of uh, trust in the military, but growing paranoia about other governments around the world. Right. Uh, so it's like we built up this huge military machine, and we were eager to use it again. Yeah. And uh, the the death that war brings is hanging over the day the earth stood still in a very palpable way. Yeah. Uh, the Klaatu befriends a young boy whose father died in the war, yeah. and they go on a trip to visit his father's grave dur- during the course of the movie. And he says, uh, we don't have things like this back where I'm from. The boy doesn't know he's from space. 
And he says they don't, don't have cemeteries. It's like, well, we have cemeteries, but not like war memorials. Like, look at how many dead people there are here. Mm. This is this is kind of this is like really sad. You understand yeah. that the, the the sheer existence of this place is mm. sad. Yeah, exactly. And you know the. Mm. It's it's sort of poking and dismantling a lot of institutions about American might and mm. military strength and how those things were really vaunted in cinema just a few years prior. Yeah. Um, you and I are both working through the uh, Best Picture nominees that were nominated in 1942, uh, which was uh, right when the world was embroiled in a great world yeah. war. And a lot of them are uh, very anti-Nazi mm-hmm. and very good. good. Well, absolutely. But the point is they're they're very propaganda. Yeah, uh, they went pro, fa- pro allied propaganda. When, and, when you watch like the Academy Award uh, nominated films in like 1940 and 1941, you can see that they're starting to get a little bit more willing to acknowledge that mm-hmm. war is breaking out. And by 1942, it's like, well, propaganda yeah, time. All, all of them are just pro- yeah. pr- military propaganda. Pretty jo- much. Join the war effort, fight the Nazis. This is what we need to unify against. All of our movies are going to be about that now. Yeah. The mi- military might is great. And yeah. by the time we get to the early 50s, we're like, we okay we we dropped a bomb we went too far here yeah (laughs) Yeah, so something something got really fundamentally fucked up during this push yeah and uh, i still feel like the ultimate uh uh, film about that is still gojira uh, gojira and um uh uh, best years of our lives oh okay about sort of the 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 wound that it left behind. Well, and that, uh, about fireflies is in America. I was yeah. going to fireflies in Japan. Oh, for, yeah, yeah, for for about like the actual bomb. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gojira, um, the grave of the fireflies, and uh, Kurosawa's I Live in Fear. Yeah. Uh, those are all really really wonderful films. Yeah. Well, uh, you you picked a film mm. that you know dares humanity to change its ways, mm. and I'm going to pick a film next that. Uh, dared me to change my ways. And it's actually one of the few films I can point to where I can look at that particular film and say, that film changed the way I look at things. Okay. On a regular, almost daily basis sometimes. I think about this movie, and I'm not going to say that like I treat it as like a gospel, I live my life like it, but I try to meet its challenge. And that is Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life. <laughs> You've talked a lot about this movie. I love I, this movie. I'm surprised it's not your number one, quite frankly. It's, it'd probably be for just personal like impact, it probably would be. But I, I think there are other movies that are made with a bit more, you know, craftsmanship and more uh, and maybe have made a greater impact on the world, but Defending Your Life is very special to me. Have you seen Defending Your Life? You've seen it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, We've talked about it a lot. Dude. I'm just making sure. I, you know what? Yeah. I'm tired. Okay. Uh, but uh, Defending Your Life stars Albert Brooks uh, as a man who dies. Like, right at the beginning of the movie, he dies. And he is sent to the waiting area. And the waiting area is this place where all souls go when they die. Mm. And you are waiting there. And they get a nice hotel room. Uh, one of the perks is you can eat as much as you want and everything tastes amazing because you don't have a body anymore. So who cares? So it's just the pure like brain sensation. Um, but in order to move on and to achieve the next stage of like enlightenment and, and pure mm-hmm. existence, you have to explain yourself. <laughs> they will show you clips from your life. And these are the big moments that defined your existence. The moments where you made a big choice. The moments where, and this the movie's really big on this, you let fear guide you I and prevent you from living the best possible the, life. The, the ultimate virtue in the world of defending your life is courage. 
Yes. Not necessarily like courage as in I will slay the dragon, mm. but the courage not to let self-doubt get in the way of living your best life. So Albert Brooks plays a guy who isn't remarkable. He's, he, and he's played by Albert Brooks, so he's, he's known for playing kind of neurotic characters. Yeah, so like he doesn't have like a lot of really exciting, incredible moments in his life. The moments in his life are like little moments where he got bullied, or a moment where someone like approached him and said, "Hey, Casio's going to start making wristwatches. You want to invest?" Mm-hmm. And he's afraid to invest in something that seems like a gamble, and he misses out on it. And I. Uh, I think about this a lot. Which is an incredibly 80s plot point. It's a totally yeah. 80s plot point. But it's one of those things that's easy in hindsight. And they even talk about that. Mm. It's like, is the point that I didn't make money? I made the best choice that I could at the time with the knowledge that I had. Mm. It seems like you're only mad at me or saying that I only made a mistake because the investment that I made didn't happen to make money. Who are you to judge? That is hindsight is twenty twenty kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I actually appreciate that when yeah, all is said yeah. and done, you can defend your life. You can mm-hmm. look at your life and your actions and you can change. And that's one of the cool things about the movie is that uh, in the process of defending his life, he finally achieves the kind of uh, uh, enlightenment that is required for him to have a positive enough life, to have made enough of his life to justify moving on there's mm. no hell in this uh, uh world if you if you don't you, you, sort, you, of a, you sort of a, are you do you send or do you reincarnate you, ins- you you ascend if you can successfully defend your life yeah if you can't successfully defend your life you reincarnate and you try again that's right yeah, yeah. And, and there's actually like this whole gimmick there's like a tourist attraction where you can see your past lives mm. and uh, everyone almost everyone has a few uh, and uh, there, I love how how neurotic Albert Brooks is about this, where he's like every every time Rip Torn is amazing, he plays his lawyer, and he's every time he learns something secret about the universe, he wants to know how normal he is. <laughs> There's like this great bit where he was like, um, uh, uh, it's like uh, how many I forget the exact number, like how many past lives did you have? Seven, seven. Mm-hmm. Am I the dunce of the universe? <laughs> it's like no, no, no. It's fine. it's a little high, but it's not. It's fine. It's fine. He's like ah. Um, there's a, there's a, um, the great bit I think about a lot where, uh, he says, um, Rip Torn asks if he gave a lot to charity mm. and Albert Brooks like, I, not, I guess I, 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 I give a lot to people on the street, but they don't give you a receipt. Like how much was I supposed to give? Mm. What's the total? And Rip Torn says, you know who you're cheap with? Yourself. <laughs> and... I mean, yes, you should still give the charity, obviously. But like the point is, is that it's a it's a movie that is very much about suggesting that at the end of all existence, you will ask yourself, how well did you live your life? Mm. Doesn't matter, you know, how remarkable your life was necessarily. What matters is at the end of it, can you say, I did the best I could? And that's something that I think about a lot because I'm very neurotic. (laughs) In case you hadn't noticed, I'm very neurotic. I'm full of anxiety. I overthink everything. And... At the end of the day, when I come across like hard decisions, one of the things I think about is defending your life. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if someone put, looked at this moment and said, Bibbs, how do you feel about what you did? I want to be able to say, I did the absolute best I could and I tried. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a noble endeavor. I, I'm not a religious person, 
but this movie has become kind of a spiritual ethos for me. Okay. And I think it's it's it's, it's got flaws, it's got so issues, it's not remarkably well photographed or anything yeah. like that. Uh, but it's so you, it's you, sweet you, and it's thoughtful yeah. and it gives me, someone who is an atheist, something to latch on to. And I like that. A, a little bit of spiritual currency, as it yeah. were. A, a, a way to look at it other than mere karma, which is... A, a little bit of a vague concept. I, uh, uh, the sort of co- cosmic justice will be, be repaid, but in in ways that are a little bit ineffable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I love this movie. Again, it, maybe it's not the most finely crafted image picture ever made, but conceptually, yeah. And in its tone, I get so much out of it, and it's really enriched my life. Well, that's great. It is, I, I, and I, I know it's one of your favorites. And I'm, like I said, I'm surprised it's not your number one. It would be my number one if it was just personal favorites. But oh, again, okay. I'm looking at the best, and that's not exactly the same mm-hmm. thing. One could argue it is, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at it like it's so personal to me. I'm not sure I can promise that to other people. Okay, so that's why I feel like I can't make it number one. I can't promise that you'll have an epiphany. <laughs> right. All right, but I do think it's worth watching. Yeah. I do think you might enjoy it and get something out of it. And I hope whoever's listening, if you haven't seen it, you give it a try sometime. Yeah, there are many wonderful films uh, about. About the afterlife and about what that might look like yeah. or what the, the experience may be uh, for, for the kinds of people who believe in the afterlife. Yeah. And uh, some have, have really gotten under my skin. I do take uh, Defending Your Life with me. We l- were taught it in school, in high school. Uh, mm-hmm. We were t- taking a unit on Buddhism. Oh. And the, the idea of recurrence, of, of yeah. transmigration of the soul is, is a big part of uh, the Buddhist teachings. Yeah. So yeah, we we got to watch defending your life That's as great. part of a Buddhist teaching. Uh, I, I'm very fond of. Uh, Hirokazu Koreeda's Afterlife. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the best films of the 90s. I'm to see this. Yeah, I've talked it up a lot. Uh, when it comes to, like, what would what would it, like, actually dying and, like, the immediate aftermath of being a ghost feel like, Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void seems kind of accurate. Yeah, just that makes sort of, sense to you. Yeah. yeah, like, that. that's what it, like, it feels like you're dreaming all of a mm-hmm. sudden, and that that's, that just sort of strikes a chord with me, personally. The one, the one I think about mm. is, um, uh, Waking life. Mm. Waking life is just this like sort of like it's it's an experience of like pure consciousness just flitting about yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all of reality and um yeah there's something about that that I th- is, that connects is, with me too yeah. like you you become the people you talk to and you become the ideas in your head and yeah. uh, and there's not a grander judgment or idea beyond that. Yeah. And, and that's just, kind just, of, and there's a kind of beauty to that. There's a connective tissue between all of us and what if the connective tissue is what matters? And I think yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also have a religious film on my list, oh, uh, something that is, uh, pertains very directly to, uh, Catholic dogma. Is it, is it's it actually, dogma? it's actually 10 films. Oh, uh, it's Christoph Kieslowski's The Decalogue. For a second, um, I thought you were going to go with Kevin Smith's Dogma, and I was about to be very surprised. Uh, <laughs> I think Dogma's fine. It's, it's uh, <laughs> I, I like it a lot, actually, but yeah. It's, it's, um, Dogma's an interest, interesting film because it is, uh, Catholic doctrine as interpreted for through the eyes of someone who got all of their life life lessons from comic books. Yeah. So it's all about like superpowers and rules and uh, you know, the the kind of moral absolutism and what does God look like through that lens. It's actually, actually, if you can, if you can appreciate that lens, it's actually kind of a thoughtful kind of nice movie with just a bunch of like shit jokes and stuff. Right. right. It's, it's, It's definitely very adolescent. It's not hugely sophisticated, but you can see Kevin Smith is trying to say something rather profound. He's trying to wrestle with the actual ideas there. It's interesting, but the Decalogue, tell us about the Decalogue. Uh, The Decalogue is a 
okay, is is it a movie? Or is it TV? It's, it's Who fine. Gives it's a a shit. Who cares? It's a film cycle. It's yeah. a cycle of ten short films that Christoph Kieslowski made in the late eighties. Uh, each one devoted to a different commandment, and uh, goes through one one through ten, and goes by I think the the lineup of the the commandments in Exodus, and makes a short film about each one. Uh, they're all set in modern Poland, and they are all only thematically linked, for the most part, mm-hmm. to the uh, the commandment in in question. Yeah, like uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, is one yeah. of the commandments. And so that's sort of about, uh, that's only sort of really vaguely connected that short. Um, the most famous one and the one that gets like sort of the most play was the expanded version of the fifth film, which is thou, thou shalt not commit murder. Ah. And, uh, it was generally speaking, one of the commandments I agree with, even like from an outsider's perspective, yeah. I, I'm like, yeah, that, that one's fair. <laughs> well, th- there's ways to interpret all of the commandments into into modern life without uh, you know, keeping that sort of like spookiness about them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it uses a lot of sort of ancient language and it pertains to like o- old tribal customs that we're not familiar with anymore. But there's a, fundam- a fundamental idea behind each of the commandments that I think the Decalogue is trying to modernize. Right. And, uh, and, and like so dogma. just like dogma, yeah. you should have picked dogma. <laughs> but dogma has a shit monster exactly <laughs> the decalogue is a little better uh but yeah if, does it have if, a better shit monster <laughs> i'm sorry it was right there it christoph right kozlowski is an amazing ambitious <laughs> yeah. filmmaker uh, he uh he uh did he has two two major film projects in his career yeah. uh that were a series of films that all pertained to central ideas the decalogue was all 10 of the commandments Short film about killing was the lo- the longer version of the fifth film. Mm. There's a shorter version. They're both good. Uh, the Criterion Collection luckily has released them all in a big old box set, so you can just grab them all uh, if if you're so inclined. The other ambitious project of him was, was the Three Colors trilogy, Blue, White, and Red, mm. which pertain to the three colors of the French flag, because he's also a French expat. Yeah. Um, so he, his films are very much about the relationship uh, between European countries, particularly France and Poland, the countries where he lived. But he's also trying to get into essentially the very fabric of modern life by looking at it through a religious, yet also a very secular lens. Mm. Uh, so if you're very, very religious, you're going to find all these religious themes in the Decalogue. Uh, if you are, uh, if you're an atheist, you're going to see how those ideas that come from this ancient book actually do have relevance in the modern world in a secular sort of way. Um, and I think he is walking a very fine line with all of these films in the Decalogue and succeeding exceptionally. Um, it, it's been a while since I've actually marathoned through them all. And, uh, Sounds like, how long was, is, are they all like, what, what are the average length of them? Like an uh, hour? Like or? 45 minutes a piece. Okay. Let, let me look up the, the lengths of each one. So it's a binge. Um, like if you're binging a Netflix series, that's what you're looking at. Yeah, Like it'll take much. you a weekend. Let's see. Um, yeah. The 10th one, yeah, 55 minutes. They're they're typically a, 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 yeah. un, under an hour a piece. So like, yeah, so like it seemed like a, long, at, a lot at the time, but nowadays when like, oh, there's a new season of whatever on mm-hmm. Netflix, he will get through it all on a weekend. You can do that with the Decalogue. Yeah. Might as well. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I've uh, actually never seen it. 
You haven't? Oh my goodness. No, I always meant to like binge it. I always meant to like sit down with it and like get get the whole wave of the experience. And the older I get, the less time I have. I need to engineer an excuse. It's hard to block out, you know, about about 10 hours of time. If we have like a podcast we're doing about it or something, I have an excuse. It's it's part of work. Yeah. Yeah. I can justify that because I like, there's nothing else I should be doing right Mm -hmm. now. But uh, yeah, the older I get, the harder to just make the time. But I do mm. intend to at some point because yeah, I actually I mean, really like Christoph Kieslowski's work. Mm. Uh, but that's just this big, ambitious, giant thing I just never sat down with. Yeah, I I appreciate big, ambitious, giant things. Uh, yeah. Whether or not I like the the end result, I always appreciate ambition. You gotta, you gotta I'm, appreciate. Uh, yeah, ambition, I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of the Decalogue. I'm a big fan of Small Axe. Yeah. I think Decalogue and Small Axe can be mentioned in the same conversation. In, wow. In that they have the same scope, yeah. um, and they're a cycle that's arguably one film, but it's in different pieces. You right. can watch them individually and appreciate yeah, them individually. Is it, is it TV? Is it film? It's just good. Just watch it. Yeah, and, it's uh, all cinema. It's yeah, all and, uh, it's all the same art form. It's just the delivery mechanism is a little different. Oh, yeah. and uh, the expectations and, uh, are a little are a little different. I, I even appreciate a, a big genre project like The Lord yeah. of the Rings. I'm not a big fan of those movies, but I appreciate the ambition behind them. God knows they, they tried, took they a big tried, swing, yeah, tried they? to make yeah. these gigantic yeah. twelve hours of this story. It's like yeah. okay, well. I'm getting a little bored when there's like elves fighting mammoths, but you did that. You put that on film. My God, there were elves. <laughs> trying to think of a good way to segue from that. I think there's the, the next two films uh, that I wanted to talk about are all films that feel very spiritual. Mm. And um, well, let's talk about one that we've talked about very recently, actually, or relatively recently. Mm. We've mentioned this in uh, an episode of episode zero a while ago. Uh, and it is Akira Kurosawa's Dersu Uzala. Oh, good choice. You know what? I forgot that one. Oh, that's not on my list, and it should. I'm going to put that on my runners up. Right I'm now. glad. I'm, I'm glad I thought of it yeah. then, because uh, I thought you might, because I know you really, yeah. you really enjoyed it. Um, and, yeah, Kurosawa was one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. Kurosawa's a brilliant filmmaker. Mm. You know, you could throw a dart at a board full of Kurosawa films and end up with a classic. Mm. And Dare Suzelle is one of the films that is not talked about very often, which is odd, actually, considering it's one of the few uh, Kurosawa films that won Best Foreign Language Film uh, mm-hmm. at uh, the Academy Awards. Now Best International Film, it, which is a more appropriate title. It was also incredibly significant for Kurosawa himself. Yeah. Like, it, it was it was essentially the film that saved him. Yeah. Uh, he w- he had just made a movie that had kind of bombed. Dodeska Den. and. Yeah, people weren't really interested in Kurosawa anymore. Like he was aging out; he wasn't yeah. sort of the, the the darling that he once yeah. was. And so he decided to. Uh, he actually he writes. Uh, he's spoken very frankly about this. Uh, decided to end his life. He was actually yeah. in this really dark place. But while he was sort of in that miasma, he came upon the story of Jersu Uzala based on a Russian novel. And that was enough to uh, sort of get him interested again, yeah. get him back into movies again, get him interested in life again. And he ended up making a movie in Russia with a Russian crew and mm-hmm. with Russian actors. And he didn't speak Russian, or at least not very well. Mm-hmm. And so that was an interesting project. And the end result is something that is incredibly hauntingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dersu Zala is the story of a group of Russian soldiers who have been given the task of mapping Siberia. They're big chunks. I mean, Russia is gigantic. The Soviet mm-hmm. Union at the time, you know, mm-hmm. what, what it was. It, just this massive swath of land. Mm-hmm. And keeping track of everything in it is really difficult. I'm sure it's difficult today, but imagine like before we had computers and satellites and things. So it's a story of uh, a very thoughtful, intelligent uh, officer and his crew of mostly nice, but not very, you know, uh, so- well-read men. They're soldiers. Yeah, they're, 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 they're not bad guys, yeah. but you know, they're, they're just 
you know, they're, they're not here for the yeah. for the scholarly reasons. They're here because they were told to. And while they are tromping through the wilderness, they run across uh, an incredibly interesting old man. He's very mm. short, but he's incredibly capable. He's an incre- he's a master uh, sharpshooter. He's a tracker. He's yeah. a tracker. He understands how to live off the land. He understands. Um, he understands nature in a way that they don't. And they end. He ends up accompanying them and being their guide and forming a really fascinating friendship. It's not like a mentor relationship, nor is there any condescension to it. He very quickly proves that he's not a character. He's not a comic relief character. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, George Lucas uh, very specifically based the character of Yoda at least in part, mm-hmm. on Darius Uzala, where you meet him in Empire Strikes Back, and he seems like li- kind of a dorky character. Yeah. He's a dorky Muppet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just living in a swamp, and you don't realize that he's the enlightened one because you're brash yeah. and young and you don't know anything. And that was Darius Uzala right there. It was so weird when Yoda showed up like out of the swamp because he yeah. looks like a, a newt. He's like I always saw him as an amphibian. I mean, he's got reptilian like features. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it was sort of like a frog and like he could yeah. breathe underwater and. Uh, that's just how I saw it. That's no, the, that's, you, that's there's what, no reason. That's to what the Muppet other. looks like. You and, uh, when you're just watching Empire, yeah. when there's no other context, yeah. you have nothing. You have nothing else to it's go like, on. I, I didn't. You know, yeah. the, the the concept that he was like hiding out on this planet was was not part of the myth yet, and yeah. so yeah, I was just sort of. So yeah, I, I saw him as this thing that was part of nature. This nat- this natural being, this little imp that lives in the swamp, it's happiest there. Yeah, and the idea that he lived in like the Star Wars version of New York City yeah, for hundreds the, of years yeah, it's like this is little, weird. This little newt man lives in a high rise. What kind? Of, that, you, okay, I want to see Yoda's apartment. Actually, we never got to see Yoda's apartment. Yeah, like if he went into his apartment and it was all like swampy and he had like yeah. the climate control. Oh, he has in like there, a poster yeah. of like you know like some movie that he likes. I interviewed <laughs> I interviewed Rick Oz once yeah. and. Um, uh, it was for uh, the Muppet People Talking, a documentary that he made about, uh, you know, working as Muppeteers. And we talked a bit about him playing Yoda. And there's a line Yoda has in The Last Jedi. And mm. and Frank Oz has gone on record saying he's really thought out the character a lot. Like, yeah. stuff you don't really see on screen. He knows these characters that he plays. There's a line where Yoda talks about the old Jedi texts. And he says, hmm, page turners they are not. They read, read them, have you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, so they're not page turners. And that's when I asked Frank Oz, what does Yoda like to read? <laughs> Frank Oz was like, okay, that one I never thought of. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we're, we're straying from Dersu. So it's, it's just uh, funny, yeah, but Dersu has an impact yeah, and people don't always appreciate yeah. it. So uh, we can have there's... these conversations and talk about these yeah, pop culture the... things because Dersu Uzala existed. Yeah. And, uh, you talk about his bond with nature. There's a lot of really wonderful sequences in that movie where uh, are which are just about survival. Yeah, uh, for, like avoiding traps, freeing animals yeah. from traps, rescuing um, yourself from a, from a roaring river. Yeah, the the yeah. The, uh, the the sequence where um, Dersu Zala and the captain have to build themselves a shelter real fast. Yeah, there's before, a windstorm yeah, before coming. They, before yeah. they, uh, I think they're gonna like freeze to there's death. A wind, they're they're on uh, like a frozen tundra, yeah. and there's a windstorm coming, and there's a whole bunch of like a whole field of dead reeds, and Dersu Zala. Uh, just um, they we're out of time trying to find shelter. Mm. We need to build shelter immediately. And we need and to so start starts, now, and if so we don't, a, if we don't do it like as efficiently as possible right yeah. now, we're, we're gonna die. So he just says, "Start cutting reeds. Start yeah. cutting reeds. Start cutting reeds." And he creates basically a giant hayloft for them to mm. wait it out in. Which yeah. is also, by the way, the, what the uh, scene with uh, 
uh, the Tauntaun in Empire Strikes Back was inspired by. Oh, they, they shove him inside that, that animal. Yeah, 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 that was partially inspired by Darius Uzala, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in any case, yeah, it's about that. Mm. And then, but the real, and that's beautiful in and of itself. And there's all these really touching moments of uh, the two protagonists, you know, uh, coming to peace with mm. each other and understanding each other. And um, But the real kicker is at the end when Darius Uzala comes to live with him in the city. And he realizes that he, yeah. this guy, this one guy can adapt to the city. Darius Uzala cannot adapt to urban yeah, living, yeah. and that becomes a really sad note mm. on which it ends. But you know, it and puts a button on like how civilization mm. is encroaching and wiping away not just like nature, mm. but also an aspect of human existence yeah, that we're just a... missing now. And that's actually something that Darius Uzala kind of spearheaded in a lot of ways. I've seen a lot of movies about. Uh, living in the wild and being unable to return home. Yeah. Um, uh, there's Truffaut's The Wild Child. Mm. There's, uh, uh, what was the film with Ben Foster? Uh, Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace, Leave no one, Trace yeah. was another example, one. Yeah. Um, heck, Crocodile Dundee yeah. is kind of about that as well. And so uh, this idea that the modern world is something to be avoided yeah. uh, is... is uh, Something that's very tragically explored yeah. in Dersu Zala. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And again, people talk about Kurosawa films all the time. For whatever reason, mm-hmm. this isn't one of the films that gets talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame because I think it's one of his very best. I haven't seen every Kurosawa film, granted. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the best Kurosawa films I've seen. So okay. I do highly recommend yeah. it. What you got next? Um, well, speaking of uh, the evils of, uh, the mo- of modern living and the dangers of the modern world. Uh-huh. I'm going to talk about the decline of Western civilization. Oh. Uh, Pen- Penelope Spherius 1981 documentary about the punk rock scene. Oh, so you could totally make a documentary about YouTube. Uh, not YouTube, uh, Twitter right now. Called and Decline called, of Western... Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Penelope Spherius has made three films, Decline of Western Civilization, parts one, two, and three. Part one is about uh, the punk scene. Part two is about the, it's called the metal years. And it's yeah. about sort of how, how big heavy metal was at the time. And how it was just sort of infused with all this hedonism. Uh, she famously let her subjects like members of metal bands. And that second one choose wh- how they wanted to be filmed. And a lot of them was like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll do my hair and makeup and I'll just be in my living room. Yeah. But then you get to, I think it's Paul Stanley of kiss. Oh, wow. And he's like, yeah, I, I want the camera looking down on me from above and I want to be on a mattress and I want to be surrounded by like 10 naked chicks. Like, th- thank you. Kiss. You are unambiguous. Uh, <laughs> Or, or, or it was either Paul Stanley or Gene Simmons. It was one of the members. Of either Kiss. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would be. I wouldn't be shocked with like any any member of Kiss. Was, yeah, like suggested that. Yeah, and uh, actually, those first two are really interesting counterpoints because the first one is about. Uh, it was made in eighty one and is about sort of the the rise and the prevalence of punk rock, not just as an ethos but also as a style. How it was already being co opted by the by nineteen eighty one by a lot of. Uh, Things that didn't have the sort of anarchic spirit of punk. And punk is actually an incredibly nihilistic viewpoint. It's about mm. how nothing really matters. It's like, why are you into punk? Mm, you know, I just like to destroy shit. Why do you like to destroy shit? Okay, we're, I'm going to fast forward and quote the Joker. Sometimes I just want to watch the world burn. You know, this right. is... The, well, I mean, it's, a lot it's, of, it's, a lot it's of, in uh, contrast to, mm. you know, institutions well, and conservatism. Yeah, the, there, yeah. The, this was at a time when conservatism was on the rise and the music sought to 
not just deconstruct it, but burn it to the fucking ground yeah. with, with as much rage as was being felt at the time. Yeah. And uh, it's a very important, but it's also, like I said, very nihilistic. So they're, uh, Penelope Spheres is interviewing all of these punkers and they're just sort of, they're just angry. Yeah. They don't have much to say other than I'm pissed off and I want to wreck stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and it's actually something really profound in all of that. It's beautifully uh, staged and filmed. Uh, you get to see, proto versions of punk bands she follows some punk bands that actually didn't end up going anywhere it's like i predict that this band's gonna go somewhere and you've never heard of them and you have to sort of look them up uh and punk couldn't survive because the part of the whole ethos of punk is destruction Mm -hmm. and self-destruction and not caring about yourself or others it's it's not a long-term kind of if you if you lived by the punk ethos you died that's kind of the point of it it's like what like I, I wish there were more Germs records. Really, <laughs> look at look at the career of Darby Crash and see yeah. how how quickly he crashed. I, I, there's, out. A, there's uh, a great line in uh, it's not uh, specifically punk, but there's a great line uh, in Almost Famous uh, where uh, one of the like someone the the agent of the band Stillwater is saying uh, like, uh, Hey, yeah, okay, I know you guys believe in like the music and all this kind of stuff, but let me tell you something. If you think the Rolling Stones are going to be touring in 50 years, you got another thing coming, <laughs> and it's like. Well, well that's a little that's a little joke but yeah, yeah. but that's my point is like you know you expect them to burn out or you expect them to sell out yeah, yeah. you know one or the other you mm-hmm. know you don't expect them to find some sort of equilibrium yeah, so, you know uh decline of western civilization part two heavy metal years is the sellout point it's when music yeah. turned to yeah this sort of it was really glam influenced metal, and yeah, yeah no, it was you know this big arena rock and it turned yeah. into this hair metal and became sort of yeah. its own thing and uh, yeah, that is about, they interview all these heavy metal musicians. It's like, why are you into this? Because I get money and women. Yeah. Like that's, that's their only note. Yeah. It's like, there's nothing beyond it for it's them. It's just hedonism. Yeah. yeah. It's like, why did you become a celebrity? Because I like access to money and sex. And that's all I yeah. want this month, this fame and, and money. Like it's, nobody says, oh, I'm, I'm actually working on some important musical projects right now. And I think yeah. the sound <laughs> is real. None of them say anything like that. And that was the appeal. So, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was the whole thing. It's like, oh my god, we actually have this like system now, this entertainment yeah. like uh, uh, complex, which allows people to just live like Roman emperors, basically. <laughs> just every once in a while, yeah, you got to yeah. play the Colosseum, and then you're done, you know. But but I love being up there. Uh, there you can find any number of clips of David Lee Roth standing on oh stage, drunk out of his mind, oh, yeah. just like, hey, thanks for coming to my show. I think David needs a little drink. Glug, glug, glug. Okay, now yeah. let's sing a song. What are we singing now? Uh, that Lee, that was the appeal of the metal years. David and Lee then, Roth has uh, went to my high school. Did he really? He's on, he's on the Hall of Fame. We have weird people at our high school Hall of Fame. We have him. Mm. We have, uh, I think, Jackie Robinson. Okay. <laughs> like, couple of weird... Wow, all right. <laughs> yeah. Jackie yeah. Robinson and also, David Lee Roth. Also the guy who shot RFK. Wow. Yeah. Right. We don't, he's not on the wall. Uh, yeah, I was just <laughs> going to say. He's not on not the wall. celebrate that guy. But I, I went to Venice High School in, in here in California, and... Uh, we are best known for Myrna Loy. She's oh, that's a, gra- a good gra- one. Graduate of, uh, because that's cool. she paid to have a statue of herself put on the front lawn of Venice High School. Myrna, I love you. And good she, for you. She is standing in this sort of like goddess-like pose with her elbow <laughs> raised and she's in this robe and there's like naked hunks kneeling around her. That is the statue of Myrna Loy. That's, that's in front the coolest of Venice thing High ever. School. Good for her. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So proud. Um, but uh, to go on to Decline of Western Civilization Part 3, that is sort of a revisitation of the punk scene a decade later and how this nihilism has essentially led to entropy. Mm. The, the punk nihilism is no longer really part of it. Now it's just living on the street. And it's actually a documentary about uh, homeless punkers, the, the people who have nowhere to go anymore. A lot of them are addicts. 
A lot of them have had to resort to some pretty extreme means just to get any kind of money. And uh, it's pretty much just a a contemplation about how sad it is that all of these, the promise of nihilism and the promise of hedonism have both led to essentially just ruin. And hence the title is actually really apt, The Decline of Western Civilization. If Penelope Spheris wanted to make a decline for and make it about (laughs) Twitter yeah. She'd have a lot to work with. Yeah, she would. I wish Penelope Spheris would make more movies and more yeah. movies in general, but more movies about music I think in Twitter, particular. Twitter and YouTube, I think you'd have a lot of material. Yeah. Like, that'd be yeah. really incredible. Um, yeah, she she's still working. Uh, she I didn't see her last couple of movies because uh, she did a lot of... Um, yeah. She did a lot of like mainstream Hollywood comedies for a while there. Uh, yeah. she, one of her, her most famous, probably uh, Wayne's World, uh, which is mm. a great music movie yeah. as well. Yeah. But she also did some genre films like Hollywood Vice Squad, and uh, she did a film called Dudes, uh, and then she did uh, the Beverly Hillbillies movie, which is actually and, pretty funny, and the Little Rascals movie. I didn't oh, see that one. Yeah, uh, she did, uh, and then she did a uh, Black Sheep, the the Chris Farley comedy. Mm-hmm. She did a film I did not see called Senseless with uh, David Spade and Damon Wayans. Her last film as a feature director oh. was a 2012 made-for-TV Christmas movie called The Real Saint Nick. And I'm oh going to I'm going to bet right now that that's probably better than it sounds. <laughs> Just because she directed it because she's very talented, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen it so I don't know. Yeah. Um, but she has a lot of interesting things to say about the music scene and she hasn't made a documentary since 2001. Mm. I don't know if she wants to keep working. If she does let her. Yeah, please. (laughs) By all means. We we still have Penelope Spheris and I would like to see her direct. Uh, speaking of filmmakers Mm. who uh, haven't directed a lot, although this particular filmmaker did pick up the pace eventually, uh, Terrence Malick is a guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, made a lot of great movies, a couple of bad ones, mostly great movies. <laughs> and I would, I think there's an argument to be made. You know, some people love Tree of Life, and that's a great movie, and I love it too. Mm. But I, I think the more I think about it, the more I'm pretty convinced Days of Heaven is his masterpiece. Okay. Uh, Days of Heaven is, first off, it's one of the prettiest movies ever made. Like, the entire movie was shot at Magic Hour, which you're familiar mm. with. It's like this one particular period, like, in the late in the day when, like, after the sun sets, but before... Oh, it's, it's, it's right right before the sun begins setting and properly. Yeah. When the quality of the light changes, but it's... And it looks really great for photographers. Yeah. But it lasts a really short amount of time. Yeah. You, that's why it's called The Magic Hour. You mm. have a very limited amount of time. It's hard to shoot a movie that way, and they did it. Uh, it stars... Uh, thank you for correcting me, by mm. the way. Uh, it stars, uh, it's Richard, Richard Gere, Gere, and, yeah. uh, who's, who's the, who's his co-star in that? It's, uh, it's um... Sissy Spacek, right? No, no, Sissy Spacek, you're thinking of Badlands. Or Badlands, you're right. Um, yeah, hold on. Days of Heaven, I want to make sure I get her name right, because I'm just spacing out right now, and I'm really embarrassed. Oh, uh, I... Brooke I, Adams. Brooke Adams, yeah. Her, so name, her name was on the tip of my yeah, brain. Yeah, it's, uh, J- Richard Gere and Brooke Adams. Uh, they are, uh, lovers in the Great Depression. And, uh, they are, uh, moving from, from, uh, uh job to job uh, finding work wherever they can and uh, they end up working uh, harvesting uh, I believe it's wheat for a wealthy landowner played by Sam Sam Shepard Sam Shepard is a lonely man and he's dying he's got some sort of terminal illness and that's going to be the end of him and it's very sad he's actually very young and Richard Gere and Brooke Adams decide to take advantage of him 
And they concoct a scheme where he says, listen, she seems kind of interested in you. You seduce him. You marry him. And then he'll die. And we just have to be patient. They're not planning to kill him. They're just going to take it. They're going to. And it's even like, you know, you're going to you give him some some happiness in his life. He won't be as lonely. And uh, then we'll just wait patiently and then he'll die. And then we'll have all of his money and everyone's happy. Problem is. Love makes him feel better. <laughs> so it, it actually the act of like being in love with somebody and having like actual like human connection in his life is genuinely affecting his health and now he's not really dying anymore and they don't know what to do with that and now they're mm. trapped in this horrible scenario in which they're still lovers mm. but she's starting to feel closer to Sam Shepard and Richard Gere is starting to really be the fifth wheel mm. and Sam Shepard is starting to notice that his wife and the guy that she says is her brother are a little too close and it turns into this grand it's not melodramatic that's what i love about it it's plot wise this could be like a like a big tennessee williams kind of play with yeah. uh, lots of lots of it, it incredibly could have gigantic acting and characters and performances and it could have been it, great it's and it's like on the the tip of being kind of lurid in terms yeah. of its story oh and absolutely and, and other filmmakers could have made this lurid and it still might have been good it's a good story that is not Terrence Malick, and it never really has been. Mm. Terrence Malick is often interested in like the moments between the moments other movies are interested in, and he's showing this entire movie, this movie with like these grand sweeping, like it could be like a chapter in the Bible. That's how mm. I love so much. I love this like overall story in Days of Heaven, um, and he he looks at this as this sad cycle of survival in mm. a harsh land there's a uh, there's a whole sequence in this which is uh um the uh, uh the the land is literally attacked by locusts mm. and it's an incredible achievement and it's like it, it they pulled it off really simply actually with reverse photography but like yeah it's basically just this their lives are being corrupted by the great depression and of course the um uh the the dust bowl and they're just everything around them seems doomed mm. and but they're just they're just destined to be swept up the, in it there is a lot of sort of apocalyptic biblical imagery in in days of heaven yeah uh i like days of heaven a lot um i prefer when Terrence Malick got a little dream got dreamier mm. this is still pretty ex- dreamy I do think that's fair, but it's, uh, yeah. it's more focused on plot than yeah, other films. Uh, yeah as other movies focus less on plot and even like on character and started to yeah. try to capture like emotional states and yeah, I think you, that's uh, it's really fascinating because you can see because Terrence Malick made, directed two movies in the 70s Badlands which is even more focused than Days of Heaven uh, and it's a story of uh, you know uh, two murderers who go on the lamb together mm. Uh, and then he starts like getting less interested in plot with Days of Heaven, which has a couple of big bullet points, and then is mostly interested in the longing glances between them. Mm. And then he does he waits a couple of decades, and then he does the Thin Red Line, which is a World War II movie again without a plot, but even that's sort of grounded by World War II. And then by the time he hits Tree of Life, he's just in the subconscious. Yeah, yeah and it's, plot is like kind found, of irrelevant from the him. sweet spot. Yeah. yeah, and then eventually he made his way back with um, Hidden Life. But um, yeah, this is a really, really beautiful motion picture. Uh, it's 
for me, I think it's one of the best films in the 1970s. I, I really just absolutely love it to pieces. And if you haven't seen it, I hope you do. Mm-hmm. And uh, what mm-hmm. is your number two? We're almost done here. Uh, really? You only have two left? I, I only have three. I'll, you have three? Let's see. How uh, did I count this? One, you got uh, Dead Alive, two. Dead Again, oh, Die Hard, well, The I Devil's I guess I do only have two yeah. left. Um, sure, why don't I talk about... There's no segue from... Um, See, Days of Heaven is a movie, and this is a movie about making movies. It's Day for Night, uh, oh, the Francois Truffaut movie. I haven't seen this one, actually. Um, Always meant to. Yeah, this is one of the best films ever made about filmmaking, uh, because there's no real angle to Day for Night, uh, in that we're making a movie, but like something weird happens, and reality breaks out or, you know, a a star dies. There's not like a giant plot point. Mm -hmm. It's actually just a really frank film about the filmmaking process. Hmm. And it's trying to, uh, simultaneously demystify filmmaking and also explain why it's such an alluring process for so many people. Um, it's made by Truffaut and I forgot the name of the film within the film that they're making. Uh, the the title refers to a uh, kind of shooting where uh, day for night you shoot uh, night scenes during the day. Yeah, and you mm. adjust the uh, the camera, you adjust the aperture, mm. and uh, you can also adjust uh, the yeah, way you sorry. print the film stock so that the light looks low enough that you can get away with it looking mm. like night. Yeah. Typically, it doesn't look entirely like night, but if you're consistent with it, you can get away with yeah. it. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah. Uh, essentially saying that what you see in a movie is it's all trickery. And yeah. indeed there's a lot of uh, repetition of shots throughout day for night where we get to see a shot of, of like the film set and it looks like something really kind of dreamy or artificial. And then of course there'll be a cut and it's, Oh wait, that's just a set. Um, there's uh, all this antics of people who are like trying to sneak off and having are like having affairs during the uh, the production and like sneaking yeah. off and having sex on the set, and we also have a lot of time with the director who is a very true foe like character who is having recurring dreams about the film, yeah. and so that's another layer of unreality, isn't it? And what I think it really cracks into is something that's really fundamental about films, and we're going to get into this a little bit deeper deeper when we get get to my number one, but mm. films. I think are such an appealing medium because they most closely resemble human dreams. Okay. Uh, The way we see what we feel, the kind of abstract imagery that comes at us. Yeah. Uh, Now our dreams tend to be a lot more surreal uh, than something like day for night, but it does directly link Mm. human dreams, films, and also connects it down to this rather nitty gritty uh, filmmaking process. Yeah. And how it is a very technical thing. And yet all of those things are incredibly exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If, if you're interested in films or filmmaking at all, it's cut, it's one of those must see movies. It's a school movie. It's one you're going to watch mm-hmm. in a classroom. And yet uh, somehow I missed it. So I feel well, like an asshole. You, you know, you've, you've always said you like to hold a few classics back so you can experience them for the first time. So you're think of it that way. Okay. Well, okay. Thank you. And that's something mm-hmm. I need, I need to get to as well. And uh, I thought, I had predicted your number one, and based on what you said, I think I know what it is, but I think I was wrong. Oh, okay. Uh, because I thought maybe there's a decent chance mm. you and I would pick the same thing All right. for our number one. Because I picked a film that I'm pretty sure is... Listen, there's a lot of great films in this list. Mm. I uh, I put them on the list for a reason. Uh, and uh, yet, if there's like... This is the film on my list that if I were doing like a sight and sound poll, this is the one I would put on there. Uh-huh. Uh, and that, of course, is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. I, I figured you would, yeah. Okay. Oh, am, I, am I so predictable? No, uh, you like good movies, that you're predictable <laughs> in that. Um, 
I do the right thing. I put on a runners up uh, because I feel it's it's like like I said, like with like yeah. Dracula or Duck Soup. It's like you don't need you, you don't need me to tell you again. And I think I think I want to pick I want to pick my battles on stuff like that right. though, where it's like I don't want to like completely eschew that mm. because I do believe that some films are so great that they cannot be understated mm. or that they should not or they or they can't be overstated rather. Mm. Uh, and I think Do the Right Thing is one of them. I, when I think about movies, there's so many movies that have tried to capture or at the very least exploit the idea of the national identity. Mm. Uh, I think Do the Right Thing is the one that probably comes closest. Uh, Do the Right Thing is a film that takes place over one day in New York City uh, in a small community, you know, borough, uh, mm. in the middle of a heat wave. Everyone is absolutely fucking miserable in the sun. And they're all like hanging out outside. They're all fanning themselves and everyone is just tetchy and ready to go off. And over the course of a day, we run into a broad variety of characters, um, all of whom have very distinct ideas about life. Uh, There are people who believe that there is a very simple rule to getting through life. Mm -hmm. And that is to always do the right thing. Uh, and that's a great idea, except life is insanely complicated and knowing what that is is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. A lot of it boils down to uh, uh, a pizza shop run by Danny Aiello. Uh, and in this pizza shop, there there is a lot of confrontational dialogue about how people who are living with a wide variety of people have a tendency to form ideas about different cultures and uh, different uh, different creeds, mm. and how so much of every single community interaction in this country, in particular New York, uh, is based off of some kind of racism. Yeah, it's in there. It's part of the. It's part and parcel with the national identity. And uh, you know, people try to get by. People try to live together. But uh, you know, there's a there's a button you can push. And Spike Lee seems to be very convinced. And, you know, Spike is, I I don't think he's entirely wrong, um, that uh, everything is basically one bad day away from exploding. Mm. And by the end of the movie, choices are made. Bad things happen. Mm. And in particular, Spike Lee's character in the film, Mookie, uh, makes a decision which is just incredibly up for debate ethically and mm-hmm. i think it's pretty clear but other people think, well, think it's not and i, I think that's I, fascinating i think it is that, very clear um yeah many 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 people have interviewed spike lee about this movie mm-hmm. it's uh one of the best films if not the best film of the 1980s mm-hmm. it's one of yeah something that captures something very vital about the american national character and uh spike lee has been very frustrated how uh how limited the variety of questions have been about do the right thing in interviews. Yeah. Cause you know, yeah. did Mookie uh, you know, do the right thing? Did, did, uh, I think the movie is pretty clear about what well, the movie thinks about that. The question is always, did Mookie do the right thing? And he always comes back with, nobody ever asks me if the cops did the right thing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, it's true because yeah. it boils or, down or to like, what, what is going on here with the local police? Yeah, And, and that's uh, the thing people, you know, people try to focus on because I think people are used to the idea of plot. Because that's like the climactic, like uh, what, what? Uh, uh, that that's the thing that like shoves the the mm. climax into high gear. Uh, but do the right thing isn't about story structure. 
do the right thing is about everybody in this whole community. Mm. And as a result, they all should be looked at with the same uh, emphasis. They should all have the same significance in their uh, thoughts and perspectives and decisions. And yeah, to focus on the ending, I was trying to like be cavort around it, but you're right. Let's just talk about it. Like the, the, the ending is actually incredibly clear and like mm. where it stands, I think morally and ethically. But not every character in the movie would agree with that. Mm -hmm. And that has led to some people approaching it in an odd way. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so important. Is because it probably shouldn't be a Rorschach test. And yet, it is. Mm. Because everyone, especially the Americans who watch this movie, are looking at it through the lenses of characters that Spike Lee has crafted mm. within it. And... They're 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 all. A lot of them are misguided or uh, driven by uh, racial mm. uh, stereotypes, yeah. and yeah, it's it's gorgeous. It's beautifully acted. There's a lot of hope in it, I think, but it's also incredibly cynical in a lot of ways. And um, I think and, it's, I think it's, the, I think it's one of the most important American movies. I really yeah, do. and and Spike Lee is getting at something that uh, rather frustratingly is still happening. In America, in terms of uh, how how the racial tension still exists and yeah. is still at a high boil at all times, mm -hmm. and how uh, the one one could call it the release valve of the climax of "Do the Right Thing" uh, ultimately is just something that needs to happen over and over and over again before we can finally change shit. Yeah. Uh, people need to understand that Sp that's a concept. Spike Lee yeah. uh, n never wants to give you his message subtly. He wants to grab you by the lapels and slap you around a little bit. Uh, some would some would say uh, it's it can be uh, kind of brutal to get the same point over and over and over and over again throughout the same movie. And yet the point is and yet, the most important. Well, point, you know he's he's uh, until you get it, he's yeah. going to keep doing it. Subtlety, yeah. subtlety is. Um, mm. In order to get away with subtlety, your message has to be able to get away with being subtle. Mm. And if your message is that important, you can't really yeah, rely so, on subtlety. So yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's not just you know an important American film. It's because it's not an artifact. It's an important American film because it's still very much alive. It's very relevant. Yeah, it's, it's, I hope it will. Mm. I, it would be nice to think that one day it wouldn't be, mm. but it probably will always be, and that makes me very very sad. But at the same time. He captured that lightning, yeah, I think, yeah. in, a, in and, a film, uh, and it's beautiful. If we can get to a point where do the right thing isn't relevant, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's a pipe dream, yeah. perhaps, but almost certainly, yeah. but it's a nice thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but until then, we have to watch it, and I think we have to engage with it. So yeah. please see Do the Right Thing if you haven't. Yeah, yeah, I, I, put, I feel like I... I yeah. I, <laughs> sometimes you talk about a movie, you know, you're a critic, and you want to tell people about the greatest movies ever made. And the movie is just so overwhelmingly excellent that words fail you. And yeah, sometimes yeah. when we do these lists, I feel really inarticulate. I just want to tell you, like, I just want to give you a title. Just go see Do the Right Thing. You'll be fine. Just yeah, just do just it. See, see the right. See Days of Heaven. You'll be, you'll be fine. You don't need me. You don't need me. <laughs> you don't need me here. Just the movie mm. will speak for itself. Sometimes people don't think of them as homework assignments, or they don't know they exist. And my job is to point you in that direction. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's really, really helpful for a film critic to help guide you into that experience so that you can get the most out of it on the first watch and not like wildly misinterpreted or miss, uh, you know, miss something wonderful about it 
Uh, and but sometimes the movies are just so damn good. All I feel like all I got to do is just put a neon sign, mm-hmm. you know, outside Darius Uzala. You'll figure it out. Just please give it a shot. I think you'll love it. And uh, your yeah. number one, I'm gonna guess. Yeah, I, I bet you know what it is. The discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. It, it is the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. The uh, Louis Bunuel film from the 19, uh, 1972. Good old Louis. Uh, Louis. I was I was being colloquial. Uh, it was a joke. It, it bombed. It, good, it was terrible. Good old Louis. Uh, <laughs> Louis Bunuel um, understood two very important things about cinema that uh, constantly has me coming back to his work. Uh, one, uh, that thing I was mentioning earlier about how cinema tends to resemble dreams. Although mm-hmm. uh, Louis Bunuel, who has previously worked with Salvador Dali. Uh, understood that uh, surrealism was actually a very important element of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. That if things don't make logical sense, it is the medium is stronger for it. Yeah, uh, film is great for telling stories, but more than that, it's great for communicating a mind. It's it's actually and, interesting uh, how many things we take for granted in cinema mm-hmm. as organic and natural, which on paper are not. Yeah, like yeah, just we, cutting we, from one angle to another. We don't mm-hmm. perceive reality that way. We mm-hmm. have one fixed. Yeah. angle and it's it's rotating it's on our heads Cin- but cinema is truth at 24 frames per second and every edit is a lie it, it kind yeah. of is actually uh-huh. if you think about it so in many respects a lot of the things that we take for granted like a non-diegetic sound every time you hear it or like a john williams mm. score that's surreal <laughs> you don't hear <laughs> well, that when you're doing stuff that's that's so, that's yeah. that's, a, that's a level of artificiality mm. that is bizarre but we've just started taking it for granted and yeah, the, when the, you uh, start actually letting cinema get surreal it's just sort of acknowledging that it all is the uh we're used to a very specific type of melodrama. Most films are melodramatic fictions. Yeah. Just larger than uh, life dramas. Yeah. So, yeah. and so uh, we've become so used to that form that we are even used to the sort of the story beats. We're used to films moving in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Luis Bunuel doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to say that he's making, you know, five hour epics with no stories. There are other filmmakers for that. Uh, go check out the films of Love Diaz. If you ever get a oh, chance, you love Diaz. I, I, Love Diaz. I, I have finally taken a swim in Love Diaz, and I like where I swam. I'm happy uh, for you. The but the other thing uh, Louis Bunuel understood about uh, film is that it is an art, and that all art is inherently and in, insanely directly political. And yeah. he was going to make every single film of his a very direct uh, political criticism of something. Um, the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is actually uh, a little bit more subtle in its uh, social satire because yeah. it is about the bourgeoisie and uh, the rich, basically. yeah, the, the 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 rich classes in uh, in Europe in the, the early 1970s. And the running gag of the film is that these couples and they're all uh, they're like sleeping with each other and they all have these secrets and they don't really have any sort of talents and they're not very smart. Mm. Uh, and what they want to do is go out to dinner. And Louis Bunuel staged uh, going out to dinner as this incredibly gauche classist thing. Yeah. It's like, what do we do? Well, let's go out to dinner. Well, what about people who are starving? Doesn't matter. We can have people bring food to us. He saw it as this very uh, yeah. uh, rich person activity because rich people were going out to eat all the time. And. It also gives them an excuse to of something to do. They can talk about the food. It's sort of like in in Bunuel's estimation, a replacement for actual human interaction. Yeah. Um, you know, dining is is of course universal and very very common, but uh, Bunuel wanted to stage it as a, an act of class. Hmm. And of course, and the joke throughout the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie is the six main characters can't ever find a place to follow through with their dinner. 
something something always, al- something always interrupts yeah. us. Like, oh, we're going to sit down. Okay, here's your bread. Okay, thank you. Do you have menus? Oh, yes, the menus. What's going on here? The owner just died. In fact, that's him. It's like, like he's like the dead. They have to carry the dead body through the room. It's like it's like a Monty Python. Sketch. Yeah, yeah, like, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, but you know, it, it's this sort of pointed commentary, and and these things get more and more surreal as they go on. They try to sit down to dinner. It's like, oh, let's have some. F- Wait a minute, this is this tastes like plaster. Wait, this is plaster. Are they serving us plaster food? And then a curtain opens and they're sitting on a stage. And like it's, a, all, and it's, it's all, all fake. Props, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, symbolism. And, uh, <laughs> it, and it constantly cuts back to these six characters on going on a walk. And it's never really established where they're going or where they're coming from or where in the film that walk is supposed to take place. But what Bunuel is saying is being rich is essentially like being in purgatory. You, it's robbed you of any sort of character or life. Uh, you have no activities to really engage in. You can kind of like mess around with each other and you know, dally in uh, in infidelity. Yeah, but to what? But end? yeah, but there's yeah. there's no there's no reward at the end of that. Being rich is essentially this purgatory like dead end of humanity. There's a very common anxiety dream. I have a few varieties of it myself, mm-hmm. which is you're trying to accomplish something and for God's sakes you just can't. Yeah, you know you're trying to. Uh, uh, I don't know, finish a project. You just can't do it. You're trying to have sex and you just can't do it. Uh, This particular film is like a recurring dream of we're trying to have dinner and Mm. we can't. Yeah. Like that's what they're reduced to. That's what their anxiety dreams are about. And it's pathetic. Mm. And, and yet it's everything. It's the whole, Mm. it's their whole existence. Mm. And that's incredibly sad and pointed. (laughs) <laughs> and very uh, very yeah. funny it's it's undeniably like mm, ridiculous that's one, and that's yeah. what I think really elevates uh, the discreet charm above other social satires of its stripe even above other Boonwell films mm. in how how breezy and watchable it is yeah it's actually a very light film it has all of these heady things going on about dreams and anxiety and the and commentaries on the rich but yeah it, it feels like it's on the cusp of breaking into slapstick comedy at any minute uh, and it's actually incredibly pleasant to watch, it's even fun. though yeah, even though every even every commentary is you know incredibly critical of the world yeah. in general and class in well, general. He, he enjoys like uh, pulling the rug out from the audience so mm. much <laughs> that it's it's it plays like a punchline or it plays like a magic trick, and there's something that's just really breezy and theatrical about that in a way that some of his other films just aren't like. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, a lot of the other films are confrontational to the point of like daring you to watch them. And this one's dorky <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a, an, an apt description. I'd say yeah, it's yeah, a little sure. dorky and it's, yeah. and it's a sense of humor. And I think it's, but that, that feels apropos because it's condescending to these people who Boonwell is clearly looking down on, isn't mm-hmm. he? So making fun of them, is fair, and that's one of the great purposes of humor in art, is to bring people who take themselves too seriously, or who believe that they should be elevated above mockery, and to mock the shit out of them, yeah, the, and uh... to bring them down a peg. <laughs> and that's a, this is a movie that does that very effectively. Uh, I I want to encourage modern audiences to watch *Discreet Charm* with the bourgeoisie. Uh, a, it's it's relevant. B, it's a good historical. Uh, sort of a snapshot. And also it's, it's a good time to watch something that is criticized, criticizes the wealthy and the wealthy classes during this time when, uh, and you could have done this in the eighties too. When yeah. like 
big sort of commercial fare, like mm. big commercial entertainments are just getting so much of the air in the room. Yeah. And, you know, we're film critics. We see all kinds of movies, but and, and we, all kinds are good. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. we, we go on social media and we read uh, film articles and we see how much space and ink is still being devoted to gigantic corporate entertainments. And, uh, you know, we, mm. we talked about this when we reviewed Space Jam and also Ready Player One about how mm. the company is now the hero mm-hmm. and rich people and rich companies are meant to be attacked mm-hmm. they are there to be taken to have pot shots taken sh- at them because they are the be powerful hung- we shouldn't be hu- uh, like holding on to them like they're mm-hmm. like a teddy bear we should mm-hmm. be qu- at the very least questioning should, because yeah, they have all the power and we should be wary of that we should be should sne- we sneaking up to their porches and lighting uh, you know, dog, poo. Dog, dog poo bags on yeah. fire yeah. That's that. That's what we should be doing with that. And I think yeah. uh, Boonwell had had that attitude, but he was like pretty impish about it, even well, yeah. into his later years. Yeah, uh, yeah. D- Discreet Charm is one of his later movies, and I, in, I, I think it's one of his most fully formed. Uh, some would say it's the Exterminating Angel, which is really mm. similar in a lot of ways. Mm. That's about a bunch of rich people who go to a dinner party. They're having this giant dinner party. There's like thirty of them, mm. and when it comes time to leave, they find they simply can't. There's something keeping them in the dining room and they just are unable to leave the dining room and things get pretty hairy after that. They don't know, like they've run out of food. Well, luckily some sheep wander through and they get some food. It's like, <laughs> what are they used for the bathroom? Well, luckily there's a lot of vases around. Okay. So uh, that sort of thing. And like eventually the cops say, come out of the room. We can't. We, we just we forgot how to exit a door. Yeah. There was yeah. an episode of Beavis and Butthead like that. Yeah. yeah. Or Beavis... Uh... I think both of them, they just forgot how to use the breastroom. <laughs> it was like, they just, they, they get, it's like, we really have to be. And they're like, we'll go. And they're like, we so, don't yeah. know how anymore. <laughs> we, we just forgot how to do it. Someday we, we, we will can't. realize the true brilliance of what a, a cultural dissection yeah. Beavis and Butthead truly I think was. That's fair. But we need to, uh, mm. we need to wrap this up. So real, real fast, because I know some people um, yeah. ask us sometimes to, uh, clarify this at the end of the thing because you're listening to the whole podcast and some people get movie recommendations from this. That is the whole point. Uh, so real, real fast, here are our top 10 lists. Uh, mine was, and, and again, uh, only the f- number one is the actual ranked. Everything else is just high recommendation. So it doesn't matter what order they're in. Uh, George Romero's Day of the Dead, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, Robert Zemeckis's Death Becomes Her, Ken Russell's The Devil's, uh, Duck and Muck, which was Chuck Jones, right? Chuck Jones, yeah. yeah that's what I thought. Uh, Akira Kurosawa's Doctor Strangelove. I mean, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove. Doctor Strange. Yeah, I was looking. At, <laughs> I was looking at Dare Sue Uh It was uh, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove. Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life. Akira Kurosawa's Dare Sue Uzala. Yeah, Terrence yeah. Malick's Days of Heaven, and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And Whitney's was uh, Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Kenneth Branagh's Dead Again. John McTiernan's Die Hard, Ken Russell's The Devils, the only film to make both lists. <laughs> Destroy All Monsters. Actually, I don't know who directed that one. Uh, uh, Robert Wise's The Day the Earth Stood Still. Krzysztof mm. Kieslowski's The Decalogue. Penelope Spears's The Decline of Western Civilization. And you meant the whole cycle, right? Uh, if you want one, go for the first. Okay. But yeah, why not all three? All right. Uh, Francois Truffaut's Day for Night. And Louis Benwell's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Now... This was a big topic. So as you can imagine, we both have mm. some runners-up, stuff that just, you know, we had to cut it down to 10. Yeah. But uh, if you're looking for more recommendations, uh, Whitney, why don't you give us uh, your, uh, your, uh, your, some of your runners-up? Or as many as you want. Yeah. Take um, your time. 
Uh, I'm very fond of a science fiction film called Dark City. It's yep. a very uh, music video looking kind of psychedelic uh, yeah. film about Up- warping reality. Really, Update really of like German it. expressionism. It's really great. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, John Waters' A Dirty Shame mm. uh, is it was the last feature film he made. It's going to be the last feature film he makes. It is uh, really adolescent about sex in a fun way. Uh, Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused is a really uh, wonderful snapshot of a time and really good about sort of character and dialogue. Uh, Robert Bresson's Diary of a Country Priest mm. nearly made the cut. That's a really kind of a, kind of an important movie. Uh, Do the Right Thing was on my list. There were some like just legit great movies that you've heard of that I sort of put on my runners up, like sure. Do the Right Thing, like Dog Day Afternoon, like Doctor Strange Love, like Dracula, like Duck Soup. You mean the original uh, 1931 Dracula? That is the 31 yep. Dracula. Um, that that's. I know it's an unpopular opinion, but that is my favorite Dracula. I mean, it's a apart, classic. Apart it's from a, Nosferatu. It's a classic. Um, I mean, we can all yeah. agree on that. Yeah. Uh, Down by Law, the Jim Jarmusch movie, oh, is really okay. quite good. Uh, Dawson City Frozen Time Ooh. is a really great documentary film if you're interested in the history of film and film preservation. Uh, Day of the Dead was on my list. I added Dersu Uzala when you mentioned it because yes. it slipped to my mind. Uh, and, uh, of course, who could forget the indelible 2005 classic, Dangerous Men. Uh, uh bless you. <laughs> wonderful piece of outsider cinema from, uh, writer, director, producer, caterer, John <laughs> S. Ra- John Rad. Nice. Yeah. Nice pick. All right, that's, that's your list? Yeah. Uh, right. wa- wa- go online, and I think you can find it. Just watch the opening credits for Dangerous Men. Oh, yeah. You'll be glad you did. Yeah. All right, it's, uh, it's, it's like one of the most like hilarious and astonishing things. All right, my runners up. I had Dark City as well. I okay, agree with okay, you on that. All right. uh, Ernst Lubitsch's Design for Living, which is this awesome oh, pre-code. I yeah. I, I, imagine a love triangle, but before the end of the movie in the early '30s, mm. they all decide, "Fuck it, we'll all just fuck each other." Like, <laughs> why? Why choose? Who cares? We all, we all, we're all cool. It's great. Uh, Drunken Master Two is one of mm. the great uh, martial arts movies. Also one of the great martial arts movies, less talked about. Drunken Master 2 is better known in America as Legend of Drunken Master. Mm. Both are fine. Uh, but uh, you want to see some of the best martial arts choreography in history, see a film called Dirty Ho. Mm. Uh, Dirty, uh, it's H-O. Mm. Uh, and it is a great martial arts film about a... Uh, Gordon Liu plays, I believe he's a prince, and one member of his family, he doesn't know who, is trying to assassinate him. So he is incognito, and he runs afoul of a street urchin, uh, and he has to hide the fact that he's a martial arts master from this street urchin who keeps trying to uh, fight him, and it's incredible. Like, every action sequence is, is, is a painting. Like, it's absolutely just stunning, some of the stuff they do in that movie. I love that movie. Uh, let's see what we got here. Danger Diabolic. Still probably the sexiest comic book adaptation we've ever had. Incredibly stylish, wonderful. I love it to pieces. Uh, let's see. Uh, Dead End, Humphrey Bogart movie from the late uh, oh, 1930s. Yeah. Gorgeously photographed. Great, too, great yeah. film about desperation in uh, uh, the Great Depression. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, Dario Argento's Deep Red came very, very close to my list. I think oh, okay. it's arguably the best giallo ever made. Uh, let's see what we got here. Devil in a Blue Dress, Carl Franklin's mm. incredible film noir. Uh, mm. The Devil Wears Prada really is wonderful. It's just, I don't have a lot to say about it, but it's just so wonderfully well made. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I wish the main character weren't in it. I can appreciate that. <laughs> I, like, I, I like everything at the magazine. Yeah. I like yeah. the world, the, like the, the Meryl Streep character. I like the Stanley yeah. Tucci character. Anne Hathaway is like 
kind of bringing the whole movie down. I can I can see yeah. that. There's an argument to be made there. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, the original Lady Diabolique. Oh uh, yeah, one yeah. of the great film noirs of all time. Uh, Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy, one of the most <laughs> colorful, yeah, wonderful. He's, I love Dick. Warren Beatty was an underrated filmmaker. I feel Dick Tracy is incredible. Die Hard made my runners up for the same reasons that Do the Right Thing did. I thought it was kind of obvious. Uh, Django Kill, If You Live, Shoot, is one of the great spaghetti westerns. It's super insane. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, another cartoon short. Mm. Donald in Math Magic Land. I have that on DVD. That movie is absolutely mm. wonderful. It's oh, wait, Donald I Duck learning, to, uh... learning about the magic and history of mathematics. It is one of the great educational films mm. And it's just a real treat. What did you? What did I, you I forgot to mention Dripalong Gaffey. Oh, there you go. I, I had said it earlier though. And so I've, I've and talked I, about Dripalong Gaffey. And I mentioned already. as well Duck Dodgers in the twenty fourth and the half century, and Duck Season are also mm-hmm. on my thing. Uh, a relatively recent edition. We recently discovered it on episode zero. Doctor X is super weird. <laughs> Doctor, I love it. Doctor X is great. Uh, er, early early color experimentation. So yeah. it looks awesome, it looks and it's amazing. It, it's like Agatha Christie, but with mad scientists. Yeah, it's, it's like. Really Imagine, imagine you're getting through an act of the Christie and like, oh, who's the killer? And then it turns out you couldn't have possibly guessed who the killer is because they were using mad science. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, let's see. An incredible, wonderful feminist horror film made for TV movie. Don't be afraid of the dark. The remake with Katie Holmes is actually pretty good, but the original is a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dog to Afternoon I mentioned as well. Double Indemnity came this close to being on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, another cartoon, The Dover Boys at Pimento University. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of Peyton Reed's Down With Love. I think it's an underappreciated <laughs> masterpiece. Um, I, I, I think you can just go watch the films it's riffing on and have a better time. I actually like Down With Love better. All right. Fair, I, I've fair, seen fair. a lot of those movies. I think Down With Love hits mm. me harder. I like right. it better. But I do agree. It probably helps to understand those movies mm. before you see Down With Love. So I, uh, that's something that keeps it off of the top. I'll, I'll say this. Uh, Ewan McGregor's like American accent uh-huh. is is unlike any accent you've ever heard before. <laughs> I love it. So like much. he just he's he's made up this American accent that only he uses. I love it, and I I really adore it. Yeah, let's see. Uh, awesome sci-fi action movie, Dread. Dread just kicks ass. Yeah, Dread. Fuck you. I love Dread. <laughs> it's, uh, let's... It, it, it's fine. I have, okay. no, I have nothing against Dread. It's just it's just fine. And then last but not and last but certainly not least, the incredible hallucinogenic kink masterpiece, The Duke of Burgundy. <laughs> yeah, I like the Duke of Burgundy. Too, I, I yeah. wish more people have seen the Duke yeah, of Burgundy. Peter, Peter really Strickland is the director. Yeah, and, uh, really fucking good movie. Peter Strickland has done a few other really interesting films as well. Yeah, the so, Barbarian uh, Sound Studio was a one yeah, of and, one uh, um, well, yeah. and In Fabric. I haven't seen that one. In yet. Fabric is yeah. really great. It's about a killer dress. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that is it for the Iron List. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed the movies that we recommended today. If you have any uh, suggestions, anything we missed, anything we didn't mention, anything. Uh, you really want to say it all about uh, our picks for this mm. month's Iron List, feel free to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, oftentimes when we do these lists, people send in their own lists and let us know how we screwed up, and we're always fascinated to hear by it, about it, and sometimes we learn about movies we never knew about. So uh, please feel free to chime in. We'd love to hear from you, and we might read your email in upcoming We've Got Mail. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, every month you can vote for episodes of The Iron List on our Patreon. However, we are taking next month off for The Iron List, uh, specifically because we have some other Patreon-exclusive shows that we're trying to catch up on, and we want to make sure that we're... Uh, uh, 
on top of everything. So the Iron List is going to take one month off. We'll be back in September, and there will be a poll on the Patreon for all of our patrons to vote mm-hmm. for sometime in August to decide our September episode. Uh, once again, that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, in addition to being able to vote for shows like The Streaming Club, uh, you will also have exclusive podcasts about the 1960s Batman, about every film ever nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, uh, about every single episode of Star Trek. We just started doing uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. We're going to do one episode mm-hmm. a week. Big deal. we got commentary tracks. We do hangouts. Uh, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, and this show is very time-consuming, actually, even yeah. though we only do it once a month. So we just felt like this one time we had to take a quick break. So we apologize for that. We will be back. This will be a short-lived uh, hiatus. Um, so uh, thank you, everybody who voted. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. Seriously, without our patrons, we wouldn't exist. We're incredibly grateful to you. Uh, if you if you are running out of soap by any chance, please head over to Etsy.com and look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. That is the soap store run by myself and my partner, M. Lapis Da Silva. We have a lot of designer soaps mm-hmm. out there, uh, and uh, we're very, very proud of it. And we've had some great reviews, and they smell amazing, and they're really good soaps. And I'm, I'm actually just – it's a really exciting chapter in our lives, actually. Um and I guess that's that. Whitney, any last thoughts before we go? Um, I was going to try to think of like some farewell that begins with the letter D, but it just slipped my mind. So thank you for your listening, and we, we are appreciative. Dang it. Starts with a D. Yeah.